Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are uh, go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 99. Yes, episode 99. We are so close to that magical triple digit. I can't believe we've been doing that many of these. It's kind of insane. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Zach, welcome back. Glad to be here. I missed you guys. It was... Yeah. It, it, it was a weekend where I didn't have anything to do. It was so odd. Yeah, and, and I mean, with, with without you on the podcast, we only went like half the time. It was amazing. Yeah, let me guess. <laughs> did, did you get a chance to watch Bad Hair, Zach? No, I, I did not. Oh, bummer. I, but I'm I, curious I can, what you think of that. I'll have to watch it sometime, but I'm guessing that... La I haven't listened to your podcast last week, Confession, but I'm guessing it was a lot of Seahawk talk, a lot of Nebraska talk, and maybe a lot of Band of Brothers talk. I'm guessing those three things come up at some point. Um, no, it was more Gone in 60 Seconds. I think we quoted that like three or four times. I think so, <laughs> in like the first 30 seconds of the of the podcast, yeah. Because <laughs> we were talking about how we didn't call it episode 99 because we couldn't mess up the order of our episodes because of what we had planned for, for number 100, so... Which we got coming up next week. Can you believe we're already to episode 100 next week? That's insane. Well, you know, technically this is episode 100 because of our lost episode. Oh, yeah. That well, that doesn't that, exist that, anymore. That doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. It's and like that the thing about the tree that falls in the forest and no one hears it. So it, it never happened. Yeah. That was the that was the previous iteration of the Almost Sideways podcast. Well, we actually had a, a couple episodes of that, didn't we? Like it wasn't just that one that never. I think it was aired. two, and then the third one was the lost episode. I, yeah. I think that was how it went. Anyways, we got way too much to talk about to waste any time today. So Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having a, a Free State uh, Beer Brewing Company a Copperhead Pale Ale, because why not? <laughs> why not? Indeed. Todd, what do you got? I went back to an old faithful, the South Shot small batch bourbon whiskey, and uh, it's still just as drinkable as ever. And I need that after that Seahawks game. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, I went to I went to Ridge Walker. I got my grenade filled, and uh, this is so. Uh, there's only a few beers that they have there that I haven't tried yet, and this is one of them that they just came out with a couple weeks ago in honor of the birthday of one weird Al Yankovic. Um, and I don't really know why it's called what it's called, but it's called is your face red and it's a red IPA. It must, it had something to do with like a weird Al movie or something like that. But I thought it was appropriate after staring at red and blue States for the last week that, um, I have a beer that is one of those colors. So, and they don't make a blue beer. That would just be weird and odd and probably <laughs> disgusting. So, well, I guess they do in uh, in Superbad. Isn't that, isn't that blue blue liquor that, that no. comes out of the Tide bottle? Well, well, yeah, <laughs> but it, be, it becomes green because he's like, oh, it becomes it's green, green beer for your information. Yeah. <laughs> green. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, so it's actually really good. It, it's it's a it's going to be a fun drink for this uh, for this podcast for sure. 
Uh, all right, all right. Well, let's get into uh, let's get into what we uh, what we've been watching. Uh, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. What have you been watching over the last couple weeks? So I watched this um, five part miniseries called the 2020 Election, and um, <laughs> it was very long. It was you know I, I went into it not expecting it to exceed the length of like Berlin Alexander Platz, but it actually did. It's now I think the longest movie I've ever seen. Um, I kind of ranked it by episodes. So like the first episode, the first night, I give that like one star, one and a half stars. It was pretty disappointing. Um, you know, I really actually gave up on it. I didn't, I didn't watch it until the very end. But, at the, but progressively, it got better and better. And I do have to say there were some really great performances in it. Um, you know, John King, definitely highest war performance. I mean, the, Dude, the, nothing the, beats watching John King at that board, man. The knowledge that he has of things like uh, Lafayette County, Pennsylvania, population 14,000, and he talks about the 2008 election results in that county, and then the mathematical percentage, uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable... Remarkable. I will say though, my love also goes out to Steve Karnacki. He was in the MVP running as well uh, because he had this sort of frenetic, like CNBC, Mad Money, like handheld camera type vibe, which I really liked. I thought he was talking about like stocks or something. Um, And he also had the khaki pants, which I really, really dug. Um, But. You know, in the end, the LVP clearly Nate Silver. I mean, come on. The guy said it was a 90% chance Biden was going to win, 65% chance in Florida, 60% chance in North Carolina. But that certainly didn't happen. And then he had the audacity to say, why haven't we called Pennsylvania yet? Why haven't we called Nevada yet? Well, I, huh, I wonder, dude. I wonder why. Let's. What happened when we went to the prognosticators like you a week ago when, you know, this election was all but over? But fortunately, good one out. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind. I love the state of Georgia. I love the state of Pennsylvania. I've been thinking about the great things that come from those states. Like in Pennsylvania, you know, you have the garbage kicking field goal kicking guy and you got Mr. Rogers and you got Arnold Palmer as the drink and uh, you have the banana split. So many great things from that state. So many great things from the state of Georgia too, like Stacey Abrams and uh, you know, John Lewis and the Atlanta Falcons before the fourth quarter. Um, you know, just <laughs> lots of wonderful things that happen, all culminating in a fantastic uh, Saturday Night Live episode last night that I will have to say, because I'm curious your thoughts about it too, Terry. It was a good episode, but you know what? I would have loved to see a documentary of the five hours leading up to the airing of that episode. That would have been pretty spectacular. I, I actually haven't had a chance to watch that episode yet. It's sitting on the DVR. Um, yeah, we're recording this Sunday, November 8th at 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Yeah, I just haven't had a chance to sit down and watch it yet. Probably going to watch it tonight. It was the first time in four years that I've laughed. And slept well. Um, speaking of sleep, I don't think anybody that worked on any network's election coverage slept this week. Because every time I turned on the TV, it was the same people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the same people on every network. It was like that scene in Apollo thirteen where it's like, is it AM or PM? AM, very, very AM. I'm sure that's what what it was like. I think John King even said at one point, "What day is it? Who really cares?" (laughs) Maybe the MVP is the makeup team on those guys. Then seriously, seriously, they look. They look the same every day, and you know that there were some rings around those eyes they had to take care of. <laughs> uh, all right. 
Well done. Well done. All right, Todd, what did you watch? What was your uh, Nick Cage movie? Uh, my Nicolas Cage movie was from 2019, directed by Ken Sanzel. It's called Kill Chain, uh, and it's centered around this you can't shootout make this at a up. hotel. <laughs> I know, right? It is a perfect Nick Cage movie. Um, <laughs> um, and it's center, it's like a shootout at a hotel, and it veers off into like these uh, different storylines being in, that are all involved with each other, like sort of, uh, because they don't all really interlock as well as they think they do. Uh, but it, it involves like gangsters, a femme fatale, hitmen, dirty cops. Like it is a perfect Todd movie, and it's a Nicolas Cage movie, makes it even better. Um, it has like the moodiness of like an early two thousands Colin Farrell movie. It's almost like a half noir, uh, which is. I mean, it's fun. It's something I hadn't really seen before from a, from one of these Nick Cage movies. My favorite character was Enrico Cal- Colatoni, who is uh, the dad in Veronica Mars. And he plays like an aging assassin. And he, he's a really cool character. And wa- Ryan Quanten is in it. Uh, I hadn't seen him in anything since True Blood. I didn't, I didn't even know he was still an actor. Uh, so that was fun to see. And Cage is like really sly and calm and quiet and like a meticulous genius which i feel like is all assassins nowadays in movies like none of them are actually badasses like they appear they just are all really like quiet and reserved and i yeah like i said the stories don't really come together as much as they 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 think they do um but uh each individual scene is pretty intense and compelling it's kind of like it's basically basically season five of uh, american horror story hotel which uh is is a pretty good uh comparison i guess Uh, i've given it two and a half stars almost three stars i have it ranked number 33 on my nicholas cage movie uh thing because i actually have them ranked officially now which puts it between (laughs) the weatherman and drive angry wow nice nice kill chain kill chain (laughs) oh i like that you referred to enrico calatoni as the dad from veronica mars I wouldn't have referred to him as that. I would have referred to him from, as the the guy on Just Shoot Me with David Spade. Oh. Oh, now I know who you're talking about. The bald yeah, guy. Yeah, the guy from yeah. Ju- the bald guy from Just Shoot Me. That that makes more sense than Veronica Mars, but that's just that's me too. Anyway. Cuz you haven't seen Veronica Mars. Cuz I haven't seen Veronica Mars and I remember watching Just Shoot Me as a kid. I do too, um, but I don't remember him in that. But that was I would have been really young. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a while ago. Okay. Uh, so my my anniversary watch for this week, uh, all right, let's see if you guys can get it. It is a 2010 movie that was nominated for one Best documentary? acting, one acting no. Oscar, and that was it. Rabbit Hole. One acting. Nope, I've seen Rabbit Hole. Damn it! I actually own Rabbit oh, Hole. Oh, Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom. Finally. It is. <laughs> this this movie is bonkers. Um. I, I think it said on the on the Blu-ray cover I got from the library that um, it is Australia's answer to Goodfellas. Mm. I think is what it said on there. Uh, but yeah, this this movie was crazy. Um, yeah, and it's got some great performances in it. Oh, now I'm trying to look here. Uh, so the main character uh, Jay was James Freshfield. That's it. Yep. 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 Um, and then you had, uh, you had Joel Edgerton, you had, um, uh, oh gosh, why am I forgetting people's names now? And of course the list uh, on IMDb Guy isn't Pierce. helping me. Guy Pierce. Well, yeah, that's not the one I'm thinking of. Ben Mendelsohn. That's the one I'm thinking okay. of. Ben Mendelsohn is just, I mean, this had to be his coming out party, right? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Because all of a sudden he just kind of appeared out of nowhere and was doing these big films. And, you know, where did he start? I mean, he started here. And he is maniacal and insane. And, I mean, he's... He, he's the uh, he's the Sonny Corleone of, of the movie, for sure. Of, of just that guy who's just the hothead that can't get out of his own way and is the man of action that messes everything up for everybody. Uh, but, I mean, this movie is owned by those few just chilling moments you have with Jackie Weaver, um, which made her... I mean, that that's what came out of it. It was her that got the Oscar nomination. But everybody in this movie is outstanding as you see you know this kid who is going through all this stuff i mean his mom dies he goes to live with grandma who's you know heading up this crime family and then you've got guy pierce who actually plays the unquestionable good guy this might be the first time he's ever played like the unquestionable you know pillar of integrity in a movie i mean maybe la confidential but there's some sketch stuff in there too um but I love seeing him in anything too. I, this is it was great. Three and a half stars, easy. Just a fun movie. Uh, I'd love I'd love to go back and revisit it at some point because it it deserves it. But yeah, it's yeah, a good that one. was on my top ten of of the decade, uh, and it's in my top hundred of all time. And I love I love the movie, and the TV show is just as cool. Like my boy Sean Hattesey plays Pope. So you could you could see Ooh. how crazy that, well, that would be. Well, then this is I think they like <laughs> found they're like, hey, there's this one guy named Todd Plucknett out there who loves the movie and Sean Hattesey. Let's make Sean Hattesey Pope just to appeal to him. Like that that is the makings of the perfect Todd. Anything, man. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you should check out the show. It it is really fun too. But yeah, the the movie is like it's dark. It's disturbing. It is. It's uh, it's super compelling. I love I love that movie so much. In the last like half hour, you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea what's going on, and it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, it might go up higher if I watch it again. But I need to watch it again. Zach, have you seen Animal Kingdom? I have not, but I feel like it will be imminently assigned for me. Well, I was going <laughs> to assign it to Terry at one point. He's like, "No, I'll watch it later this year when it's on my list." <laughs> and there it was. It it just popped up. I, okay. I realize that we're really close to the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, we are close to the I, I've got, there's like, yeah, eight or nine movies left on my list. Okay, so uh, it is, uh, those. that's what we've been watching. Now let's get to our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. Um, and it's actually featured reviews this time. And... We were looking at what was coming out this week, and there was really nothing of note coming out this week. And honestly, I'm going to say I'm pretty impressed and surprised at how well we've been able to fill finding something relevant to talk about that has come out somewhere near to when we've uh, recorded this whole time when theaters have not been releasing anything. I'm, I'm impressed, so kudos to us. But this week it was like, there's nothing really good coming out. So... We decided to highlight something that is uh, that is something that doesn't really get highlighted that much, and that's the fact that Netflix puts out all these original movies, and we've watched a bunch of them. But one thing that they do a lot of is they put out a lot of foreign and international films that don't get a lot of notoriety, but they are allowing for some of these uh, otherwise potentially unheard voices 
to be heard and giving them this worldwide audience of posting their, their films on Netflix. And so we have, uh, we, there were three foreign films being released on Netflix this week. And we each decided we were going to pick one and talk about it. So we have three movies representing three completely different countries uh, that we're going to be looking at today. So we put the choices out. Zach got first pick. So Zach's going to be the first one to talk uh, about um, what, what did we decide? It was the, the fifth film or sixth film of this name that any of us might have watched. So Zach, tell us about, tell us about your movie. Okay, well, my movie is Mother. Not the Darren Aronofsky movie, not the Bong Joon-ho movie, not The Mother <laughs> with James Bond, and not Mommy, um, but it is Mother. Or the Albert Brooks movie, right? That? Oh, that's true, too, yeah. Or the CBS sitcom Mom. Or How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> um, Throw yeah, Mama so, from the Train? No, anyway. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mother is the uh, is a film from Japan. It is directed by Tatsuchi Omori, and um, and it has a cast that I'm pretty unfamiliar with. Um, the, the main actress who plays the mother in it is named Masami Nagasawa, and she was a voice in um, Adam's second favorite animated movie of the decade, Your Name. So, there's our random connection. Um, but anyway, it is a, a Japanese film that uh, stars um, Masami Nagasawa as Akiko, and she is the titular mother in this movie. And uh, she's not a very good mother. Um, she is pretty uh, lousy. She's an alcoholic. She likes to gamble. She uh, has a young kid. Uh, his name is uh, Shue. And she uses Shue basically to try to get money from people, extract money from, for example, her parents, who know that she's pretty unreliable. And uh, she has a bunch of um, very dysfunctional kind of one-night stand relationships with pretty abusive um, men. And uh, the movie kind of follows this pattern um, of basically the abuse that she sort of incurs on Shue. Not necessarily physical abuse, although there is some physical abuse in the movie, but more of the emotional abuse. Um, there's a few scenes, like I said, where, where she kind of forces her, her, you know, this this basically 10-year-old kid to beg for money. And it's really sad. Um, and it's sort of an abuse that isn't oftentimes um, portrayed in movies, but um, is absolutely as traumatic as physical abuse. Um, the movie kind of is like um, a Ken Loach movie. There's definitely sort of a, a, a kitchen sink style realism to it. Um, as it shows this this relationship between mother and son, of course, the son is totally bonded to her and really goes to excessive lengths to protect and stay loyal to her in spite of all of these other people who come in and out of their lives, including social workers who basically tell this kid that uh, his mother is abusive and he could do a lot better than her. But nonetheless, he stays loyal to her. The movie kind of covers um, about maybe a six year period in their life. And as you see this boy mature, um, we see senses like little fragments that maybe he's starting to realize that his mom is not out for his best interests, but he can never truly abandon her. And it ultimately culminates in an act of fairly shocking violence. Um, I like this movie. It's, it's a uh, pretty slow paced movie, but it is very much about the characters. And um, there's a lot of scenes where they don't even talk to each other, but are just kind of walking along or just sort of yeah, at many times in the movie, they're homeless or they're doubling up. 
Um, and it kind of shows the sad realities of these people. Um, I assume many, you know, actual people in Japan who um, unfortunately have to live in these conditions, very poor, impoverished, um, you know, uh, single moms with their kids. Um, there's definitely a little bit of a Florida project in this movie as well, although it lacks the sort of spontaneity and joy of that movie. It, this is a pretty dark movie that um, is a pretty sort of unrelenting and bleak look at the way that this kid has to adjust to life um, while protecting his mother, but also realizing that, uh, you know, his opportunities are being lost as well. Um, it's a three-star movie. I think a little bit of tightening up would have improved it, but I like its message, and I think the performances are, are really awesome, and um, it's good to see Japanese cinema uh, represented in this way, and um, in, 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 a st in a style of realism that um, we've normally seen in, like, uh, Hirokazu uh, Koreeda movies. This one, I think, is a little bit more gritty, though, and I appreciate it. So, solid three-star movie. Would, would definitely recommend. All right. All right. Sounds good. Todd, I know you were going to try and watch Mother, so just so you could claim another Mother that you've watched. Um, <laughs> I did, did you not get a chance, chance to? to watch it, no. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you're going to be next to talk because you got second pick in this uh, in this endeavor we had. So tell us about the movie you uh, you went with. I watched uh, The Endless Trench, which is uh, directed by three people, Aitor Arega, John Garano, and Jose Marie Goanaga. And it is the official Spanish submission for the Oscar this year, which is kind of cool. Um it's a true story set in 1936 Andalusia, <coughs> south of Spain, and the Spanish Civil War just breaks out, and this guy, Higinio, uh, needs to go into hiding because he makes, like, disparaging remarks against General Franco's regime, so he has to go into isolation with the help of his new wife, Rosa, and he has no idea how long he's going to be in hiding or where he might be forced to go next or if he's going to be jailed or killed if he's caught or what his next move is at any point. It's directed with a lot of real, like, fervor like it kind of reminded me of tell no one especially in like the chase scenes but it's more of a survival movie and it really takes its time it makes you feel like the pain and like madness that you feel in like with years of isolation and like the the toll that takes on you physically and mentally and you see a lot of it from uh Higinio's point of view too so if he's like under this under the floor or if he's in a you know in a closet or whatever you, you're like watching him um look out at, like, the officers who are, like, torturing his wife, trying to figure out where, where he is, uh, trying to get information, or just, like, you know, seeing whatever it is that you see when you when you just take your few glimpses outside when you've been stuck inside for for the longest time. And you really get lost in, like, his plight and the experience and the horror that, he, that he's feeling the whole time. Uh, but the problem with the movie is that it's actually separated into chapters, so it kind of hurts the flow of the movie, because there's no real, like, logical transition, but it does span, like, several years, and, like, it really does move around a lot, so it really is, like, a turning of the page, but I feel like it would have been better if there would have been a little bit more flow to it, rather than, like, making the abrupt, like, page turn with a with a new title card. And it is two and a half hours long, but it's not really epic, it's way more, like, scaled back and observant, and so you do get really involved with the characters. Uh, it kind of meanders in the last act um so it didn't really land the punch it it should have there's also a couple like really explicit sex scenes but they're not really unwarranted but they were just kind of random uh feeling with uh with the tone of the rest of the movie i it, it really has like a good uh portrayal of like the psychological damage that you you feel with like isolation which i guess would be pretty uh obviously relevant in 2020 it's also politically pretty complicated uh i feel like it's the kind of movie that gets an oscar nomination i wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about this 
in February uh, as a one of the nominees. Uh, I'm giving it three stars. I, I just, I, I, I feel like the, the length was too much. If, I mean, it should have been a miniseries, or it should have been a little bit shorter. Alright. Yeah, this sounds like it might be one that we end up watching because it's an Oscar nominee. So, good call on you picking that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that until I, I saw that on the IMDb page. I was like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Nice, nice. Alright. Well, I got last pick. And I don't necessarily know if that was, you know, a bad thing or a good thing or whatnot. I, it just was the one that you guys didn't pick. Well, it looked so like watched... you got the one about, like, education or something. Like, Zach took the short one, and I took the one that I, like, the <laughs> like the epic one. I don't know. Yeah, as, so, as soon as you said yours is two and a half hours long as well, I was like, oh, then Zach probably just looked at the running times and took the shortest one. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I watched a film called Citation. Uh, this is out of Nigeria, um, which I, I was thinking about it, and I think this was an issue last year with a film. I can't remember which film, um, but uh, I think this is the only one that couldn't end up being nominated for an Oscar simply because uh, it doesn't qualify for Best International Film at the Oscars since uh, in Nigeria they speak mostly English. So for it to be an international film, it has to be predominantly a foreign language, if I, if I remember that right. And I think there was a film out of Nigeria last year that tried to be submitted, and the Academy said, you're not allowed to submit this, too much of it is in English. I, I think I remember hearing that about something. Anyways, but this, this film is called Citation. It's... Um, it, is in four different languages, English, Wolof, French, and Yoruba. Uh, but the majority of it is in English. And it's kind of, it's one that's kind of weird where the, the accent of some of the characters will sometimes warrant subtitles at the bottom of the screen for random, more, random lines that are said in English, just to help you understand exactly what they're saying. Uh, but it is a story of a, uh, of a young girl named Morami, who uh, is... Um, sexually assaulted by one of her professors and her fight to try and clear her name and uh, and get him in trouble for it as it turns into really a a your word against his word type of type of deal the professor is the only actor of any note in here it's played uh by jimmy jean louis uh, i think that's how or jimmy jean lewis i don't really know exactly how to say his name but he's been in a lot of different stuff. Um, it, his career started as being one of the uh, one of the bodyguards in uh, in the Born Identity of uh, the leader at the very beginning of the movie. He was uh, a regular in the show Heroes, uh, so he's been around. He's been in some stuff. He he's he's kind of a known known thing in Hollywood, if not just kind of on the periphery. Uh, the Morami is played by a brand new actress named Temi Otadola, uh, and uh, and it's interesting watching a film from a country like Nigeria because you, I mean when you think Nigeria you don't really think rich film history, and so uh, you kind of get the sense that they are still trying to establish that history uh, as they have um, as they don't really have a. Uh, a very, uh, it, it, the script is not great. Um, the acting is okay. Um, the hairpiece on the professor is the most laughable hairpiece I've ever seen. 
Um, it, 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 they try to give him like a fro, and it literally like juts forward a little bit before it goes up, and then you can like see where it separates in the back, but on his bald head, uh, it's it's bizarre. Um, but it, it's a it's a it's a good story to be telling. Uh, it is. It could have been an hour shorter easily. There's no reason this needed to drag out for two and a half hours. Um, but it, it's a solid story, and like I said, it, you can tell that they're that they're kind of working their way into establishing a a film um, background in Nigeria. And as they're doing that, I mean, kudos to them for for making a movie like this. It's based on a true story about a girl at a university in Nigeria that went through this. So I'm giving it two stars. Uh, solid effort. Uh, keep working, keep growing uh, that film industry, and uh, and you'll keep making better and better films. All right. Yeah, Ni- so, Nigeria yeah. actually has a pretty prodigious film uh, industry, and they actually put out, I think, more movies than any country in the world, with the exception of India. Um, oh wow! So it, yeah, it's it's actually called Nollywood, and actually Netflix has a really great repository of Nigerian films. Um, that one I haven't seen, but I have watched a few of them, and they t- they do tend to be uh, sometimes a little excessive in length and not always the highest production um, but values. But um, it is a real real flourishing industry that's that's seen the world over and, and getting a good kind of um, uh, pers- viewpoint in uh, Western culture via Netflix. So. Yeah, and and I could tell that. I mean, I, I saw kind of what you saw. the The production value isn't great. Um, many of the actors, you uh, looking at their IMDb pages, this was like the first films that they ever made. Um, and there were there were moments where you were like, okay, you are watching them literally look at the ground and find their mark and stand on it so they can say their line. Um, and and the script was was pretty bad at times, but again, it, it was it was a solid effort. I, it had me entertained or interested at least for two and a half hours. Um, even though it did not need to be that long at all. So. Yeah. The, the one right. I would recommend is something yeah. called the, the wedding party, which is actually, I believe mm-hmm. the highest grossing Nigerian film of all time. It was on Netflix for a while. It's actually really, I think pretty funny movie that I think Western audiences would pretty easily be able to understand. And um, actually it's re- really good. So, but there's other, there's other films as well. For sure. Yeah, the director of it, uh, his name is Kunle Afulayan, and he's um, this was his seventh film that he's directed. So he's uh, he's got quite a few that are out there. But yeah, so there you go. Like like I said, there's a lot on Netflix that uh, that many of you probably don't realize, and uh, and just how uh, rich of a background they have in foreign films and how they're constantly coming out with new foreign films. Um, it's worth looking Netflix into. Netflix had a couple last year that were nominated, right? I think so. Um, yeah, it's possible. I could, I, I can't remember now. Anyways, it, it, it's definitely worth looking into. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And these are just three examples that came out literally this week. And their Netflix originals made their debut there. So, all right. Well, let's move on from that. That 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 took a while. So let's get let's let's get into our deep dive. Uh, that we've that's been two weeks in the making here. Uh, we are celebrating the 45th anniversary of a Best Picture winner 
and winning a lot of other stuff, and that is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Why do you think they might think that? They don't make a bit of sense to me. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really? Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. God almighty, she's got you guys coming or going. Little change never hurt, huh? Little variety. Oh, Jesus! Ah, <laughs> oh, come on, you're not gonna say that now. You're not gonna say that now. You're gonna pull that henhouse shit now. When the book the chief just voted, it was ten to nine. Now, I want that television set turned on right now! I don't think he's overly psychotic. No, I want something done! I think he's dangerous. <laughs> Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Hey, wait a minute. Ah! Hold it! See how easy it is? We're from the, uh... State Mental Institution, uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Scanlon, I'm Dr. McMurphy. Hey, Mikey! What? All right, take him over! Get down over here! Get up, Tabe! <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatics, mental defective? <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you. I'll never forget you. Um, I'm excited for this one. Uh, we've been kind of taking turns picking with who uh, who would choose the uh, the deep dive movies. This was my choice, um, and I, I just thought it would be a great one to, to deep dive and talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, so starting with trivia, Todd's got trivia for us today. So Todd, lead the way. Okay, so we're gonna do. Uh, normal trivia, but I also have one category that I'm going to bring you guys back for that we're going to do at the same time. Uh, Ooh, so okay. Uh, that'll make it uh, more interesting, I guess. So, uh, I have T written before I have Z written, so I'll have Terry go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. We have seven questions worth a possible 15 points. Okay. Question number one. What does McMurphy call basketball when he uh, is trying to get Chief to play? Oh, gosh. Um, he says, like, I'm... He's like, come on, we're going to play a game of blank. Uh, oh, gosh. Let me just say now that I watched this last night for the first time in quite a while, so... Uh, I'm gonna say um, for a game for tall people. Yeah, it was uh, a game of put the ball in the hole. You know that <laughs> I, I was actually gonna. That was my other option. Was saying something similar to that. It was. I knew it, was, it had to do something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How much money total was bet that McMurphy couldn't lift the sink? Oh. 
35. No, it was uh, $26.10. <laughs> one person says 25, say. one says $1, one says, uh, I'll, bet a, I'll bet a dime. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who was pitching game two? Um, I mean, I'm not. I guess I could say the team, but I don't know. I mean, it just is what came on the radio. When when you yeah, when give me the team. Give me the team. Give me the team. I'm gonna need it. Um, give me a second. I'll look up. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, you gotta look it up. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess you would need to have heard the line. Uh, he was. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. <laughs> Looks like he was play. Uh, yeah, he he played for both the Dodgers and the Yankees. <laughs> that that doesn't help. Uh, Don Drysdale. No, it was Al Downing. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, what card in the deck does McMurphy show the guy evaluating him, asking where the girl on the card lives? Oh, and say that one more time. Which uh, which card? Does McMurphy show the guy who is evaluating him when he's asking? He's like he says, "Do you have a do you have any questions for me?" He's like, "Yeah, where does this girl live?" And it is he shows him a, he shows him a card of like the ass of some chick. But so what what card in the deck was it? Yeah, the six of clubs. I don't know. Four of diamonds. Not not a bad okay. guess. Yeah. Okay. During the boat sequence, which four of the inmates were wearing hats? <laughs> um uh okay uh i i might actually do okay on cheswick was wearing a hat he was um harding was wearing a hat that's correct um mm, oh 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 the dude the guy with the one with the beard um ellsworth i think that's not the, the great That's, Professor Ellsworth, Dr. Ellsworth. The, the, the famous Dr. Scanlon. <laughs> the famous. The, that, that was it. That's who I was thinking of. Scanlon. Was Scanlon wearing a hat? Yeah, he was. That was one of them. Okay, the... that's the one I was thinking of. The guy with the beard. I messed that up. Okay. All right. Well, okay. And the other one was McMurphy. So you got two oh, out of the four. Well... Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, uh, which I thought three that was of assumed. the inmates were involuntarily committed to the ward? McMurphy. I'm not going to miss that one again. Correct. Um, Chief and Tabor. That's right. Uh, which four AFI lists did this movie appear on? Well, greatest Villains. I know that. That's one. Um, greatest Movies. That's correct. Um, greatest, was there a greatest moments? No. Okay, well, it was, uh, it was on the top 100, and it was also on the second top 100. It was on the, uh, number 17 right, on seriously? the... Seriously? I get two points for that. You're, you're gonna qualify the two different lists of top okay, 100? I, I could just make it worth one point, then. Yeah. Uh, it was on number 17 on the top 100 Cheers. So, like, most inspiring movies, I think, is what that... Inspiration movies, which is kind That's of... That's kind of what movie. I was going for with Moment, but... And the uh, number five on Villains. 
It's the it, yeah. It's the end when Chief escapes. That's the cheer. Okay, that's all. See, so yeah, that's seven. All right, okay, I sucked. Zach. I sucked. <laughs> Terry got. It, we have seven questions worth uh, now fourteen points, and Terry ended up getting seven correct. So yeah, he sucked for a bit, and then he uh, brought it back home, sort of. And I totally redeemed myself. Question number one: What does McMurphy call basketball when he is trying to get Chief to play? Put the ball in the hoop, something like that, an old yeah. Indian game. Yeah, put the ball in the hole. Yeah, that's uh, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, how much money total was bet when that McMurphy could not lift the sink? Mm. Um, $23. It was $26.10. He was a lot closer than I was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> there were one person bet 25 one person bet a dollar, and one person bet a dime. Uh, okay, who was pitching game two when it was announced on the radio? Sandy Koufax? No, it was Al Downing. I, Koufax, I think, was pitching game one. Well, he Jack Nicholson mentions Koufax. That's the only yeah. reason, I guess. Yeah, I got, it, yeah, it was just a passing thing. I was like, oh, I should pull that one. Okay, which card in the deck does McMurphy show the guy evaluating him when he's asking where the girl on the card lives? Queen of <laughs> Queen of Hearts? I don't know. It was the Four of Diamonds. That, I should have guessed that Todd would be asking questions like this. <laughs> it makes sense. During the boat sequence, which four of the inmates were wearing hats? <laughs> Martini, Scanlan, um... Martini's wrong, Scanlan's correct. Okay. The famous Dr. Scanlan. The famous, famous Dr. Scanlan. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Harding. Harding? That's correct. And, um... That might be my favorite favorite line from the movie, by the way. Is is cheaping out Harding of a PhD. Uh, t Tabor, I don't know though. That's wrong. Uh, McMurphy, Cheswick, Harding, and the famous Doctor Scanlon, or the the four, are wearing beanies or some sort of snow cap. Uh, which three of the inmates were involuntarily committed to the ward? Uh, McMurphy, Tabor, uh, and, um, I mean, Sc Scanlon? I don't know. I don't know the other one. Uh, the other one was Chief. Oh, okay. Why else would he have to escape? It's true. <laughs> And the last one is, which four AFI Top 100 lists did the movie appear on? Uh, well, the Top 100 of all time. Both lists. That's correct. Does that count for two, or just one? It, it was going to. And Gosh, <laughs> are you serious? Yeah, I'm, I'm giving you two points, because that was originally what I wrote yeah. down. I, and, and I gave him crap, because he's, he was giving me, because he was only going to give me one... And it went, but it went down on the second list, if I remember correctly. It's like thirty-three yeah, went, or something. It, like yeah, that. it went twenty to thirty-three. Um, and then heroes and villains. That is correct. It was number five for villains. And what was there? One more, 
Or two yeah. more. There's oh, one, one more. One more. Um, like, well, heroes and villains. Um, uh, I don't. I, I I don't know. Inspirational stories. I don't know. That I mean, basically, yeah. It's a number seventeen on Cheers, which I th- I'm pretty sure is inspirational movies. So that's correct. So. So, so wait, you're giving you're giving him inspirational movies. I'm pretty sure that's and what you're doing. You aren't giving me. I, got, I, I said I, greatest I knew there were moments. Two questions. I knew that there were two top 100 lists though. That that should yeah, but so. you're getting a point for that. I said greatest moments, and he's like, no, it's greatest cheers. It's not I'm like moments. That's I mean, I don't know. I mean, that, I guess... that's kind of the same idea as is the 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 biggest like cheer inducing moments in film. That's that's closer right. than inspirational movies. Neither of you said cheers. I guess I'll take it off. Cause, I mean, Zach is in the lead eight to seven. Uh, so right, I, I want to recount. The votes are ten to eight, <laughs> Nurse Ratched. <laughs> well, I want we, my cigarettes. We have one more category that uh, there are fifteen answers, and because uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest. With famously is one of three movies to win best picture, director, actor, actress, and one of the screenplay categories. It's actually rare that you even get nominated for all five of those, and there have only been 15 in the last 45 years that have been nominated for all five Oscars. And I want to know what those are. And I guess I have to let Zach go first because he didn't go first on the trivia. As good as it gets. That is not correct. It didn't what? get the. Did it not get the screenplay? I'm pretty sure it was not nominated for best director. A director, okay. Lame. Well, I'm gonna start with the other one that won it in the last 45 years, and that's The Silence of the Lambs. That's correct. Uh, and then I'm gonna go with uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Correct. American Hustle. Correct. Um. Mm, no. Um. I kind of. I. I. Yeah. Uh. Let's see here. So Terry already won. Zach, do you have any I, more guesses? American American Beauty. American Beauty. Oh is, yeah, is that's right. a good one. On Golden Pond? I don't think that director was nominated, though. Yeah, that's correct, too. Okay. Rocky. Rocky is correct. Uh, Coming Home. That's correct. Reds. Reds is correct. Dead Man Walking? Was Tim Tim Robbins nominated? Oh, I think he was. He he was, but the screenplay was not nominated, I'm pretty sure. Oh. And it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Uh, oh yeah, that's no. true. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that's an important point. In the bedroom. That's not correct. Yeah. T- Todd Field oh, was not. Todd Field was nominated. See, it's not. It's not uh, that common that that you get all five. I mean, even Lee yes, Las Vegas true. was not nominated for best picture. Uh, the right. ones that you well, guys. I was missed, thinking like Walk the Line wasn't nominated for picture and. Or director or screenplay. Oh, I didn't get any of them. I thought I might have gotten one of them. Anyways. Um, network. Is one oh, Annie yeah. Hall, uh, Atlantic City, The Remains of the Day, The English Patient, Million Dollar Baby, and just a couple of years ago, La La Land. 
But you guys, you, you guys knocked out over half of them, so it's not bad. It may have helped that I looked at kind of that list, sort of that list, to get ready for our Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of that list, but not, I mean, it obviously It, it, it definitely was research that helped. <laughs> yeah. All right, so so let's talk about One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, yeah, so this is 1975. Best Picture winner, like Todd said, won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Screenplay. Um, and I think it's one of, is it one of only three or four to do that? I think it's three. Yeah, there's three. Yeah, this, Silence of the Lambs, and it happened one night, right? Yep. Yeah. So, the, the, the very rare feat, um, this is um, a movie that is an Oregon movie, based on Ken Kesey novel that here in here in Oregon um I'm not necessarily one that is like a huge overwhelming fan of this movie uh I I think it's a really good movie I'll, I'll put it that way but it's not like a I I'm gonna go and just throw this on for fun but I thought it was an important movie for us to talk about and um and and deep dive and look at and it's got a ton of characters it's got a lot of really fun stuff that we could look at so that's kind of why I picked it I do think it's an incredible movie. Uh, Jack Nicholson gives an incredible performance. Louise Fletcher is just outstanding in this. Um, and, and it's amazing to look back and see all these unknown actors that were unknown at the time that became something that were the, the inmates of this, of this hospital. Um, and I also love the fact that this got Michael Douglas his first Oscar because he was a producer on it. I always thought that was kind of funny that he got he got an Oscar before like ten years before he was ever nominated for uh, acting in a in a in a movie. So, um, what about you guys, uh, Zach? What, what what's your experience with uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest? Well, listen, I think this is a movie that you know when you're it's it, for me it's like when you're a teenager and you read The Catcher of the Rye, you know, you fall in love with Holden Caulfield and J.D. Salinger and there's a there's a mythos about it and it's like the best thing you ever read. I mean, for me, that was like my experience and I think probably a lot of people's experience with One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. I think when you're in high school or maybe in college, you can, you know, sort of see uh, how the movie is, uh, you know, anti-establishment, anti-conformity. When you're a teenager, you know, life sucks. I mean, you're told, you know, do get an A in school and get an after school job and go to college and be a you know citizen and i think uh randall mcmurphy is a good stand in for a lot of the uh teen angst and anger at the world that uh that those young people feel so i you know uh, this movie was a, a big mo part of my life growing up um in part because of the oregon uh references um which i'll talk about a little bit maybe later but um Alas, I think I've grown out of it a bit, um, and I sort of realized that, that that was an inevitable part, and yeah, that's a cool part of this podcast is, you know, um, not necessarily the disappointment of growing out of movies, but seeing how we've evolved, or I've evolved as a, fil as a, as a film goer. Um, I still have a lot of admiration for this movie, and I really like the book. In fact, I did reread the book probably about five or six years ago. And, uh, you know, Kesey, uh, you know, famously very much, um, you know, banished the book. He didn't like the film, or excuse me, 
excuse me, the film adaptation of his book. He had similar feelings about Sometimes a Great Notion, which is his other great novel. Um, and I think he was justified for a lot of his reasons. So while the movie doesn't hold up for me as a whole, um, it's still, I think, a great movie to kind of examine because um, it's also like, again, the cliche movie that freshmen in film classes love to write on. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to make interpretations about the movie and kind of, you know, assign deeper meaning and symbolism to it to the 1970s. Um, it's definitely a fun movie to talk about, but to watch, maybe not, not quite as much. Now, I will say one other thing that kind of goes into what you were talking about with this. One other connection I have to uh, to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is not actually for me. It's for my wife. My wife's undergraduate thesis was written about Ken Kesey and his treatment of, um, of women in his novels because he doesn't really develop any of the women characters, female characters in his novels, except Nurse Ratchet. And so that that's kind of the one exception there is it's the one actually fleshed out female character he has in any of his novels, so... That's kind of an interesting, interesting point too. All right, Todd, how about you? Uh, I haven't watched this movie much. Like, I think I probably had seen it like maybe one and some change before before uh, this week. And I, I do like the movie a lot. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think maybe it's controversial to say. I think uh, like Girl Interrupted is lo- is looked at as like you know uh, like a sister to this movie i think it's actually better in almost every way but i i do like one for the cookies this a lot which i find odd like because 1975 was a really tough year for for best picture it's my number four of the best picture nominees but it's my number five overall of the year i think i think the oscars actually did a really good job that you're picking picking their best picture nominees and one for the cookies this is a great movie and i i haven't ever had the emotional connection to it that uh that maybe zach has but uh, i I've always appreciated it, and uh, it's obviously got great performances and uh, really dynamite writing. And I love small setting movies too, and uh, obviously this is one of those. Yeah, that seventy-five list is pretty dynamite. I was just looking at it here. So it beat for best picture. It beat Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. And Todd, I'm guessing Jaws is the one that's below. Yeah, I have actually I have Jaws one spot below on my top ten of that year. And which is and which Jaws I just rewatched the, like recently, and I I forgot how great that movie is too. I mean, it really like those two are really close, but like Barry Lyndon, Nashville, and Dog Day, Dog Day Afternoon are like all timers, and I don't know. And, I mean, it, it was it was an insane best picture no, uh, list. Like I I don't think there's ever been a stronger five. And you talk about Whoa. like importance. You, you talk about importance of film. Jaws might be the most important film on that list because it was the first blockbuster. So, so that, that's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I hadn't thought about how, just how, um, how good of a race that was. Yeah. What's also kind of noteworthy, just kind of looking at that list is like, if you look at best director that year, you know, Milos Forman beat out Fellini, Kubrick, Sidney Lumet, and Robert Altman for the great directors of all time, four directors who also never won best director ever. And I mean, maybe these weren't necessarily their greatest films, although I think Nashville is my favorite Altman film. But um, like this was, you know, a considerable film at the time. And um, even even in spite of my criticism that maybe it hasn't aged the best. I mean, it certainly says something that it it beat out these, you know, luminary directors and and great movies. Well, and Foreman ended up winning two Oscars and. Which, I, I mean, it, it, I think One for the Cuckoo is one of those things where it had, like, the perfect piece of 
of source material and it was going to be a big movie regardless of how good it was and it just happened to hit every button correctly. Yeah, it definitely started that it started two I think really important trends at the academy that that have still existed these last 45 years. One is, you know, depiction of mental illness, right? And we saw that in Rain Man and Forrest Gump and A Beautiful Mind, several best picture winners, but also like the underdog story, you know, overcoming uh the establishment and uh, you know, the David versus Goliath, which you saw in a lot of um other best picture winners too, like Rocky and Chariots of Fire and a few others as well. I think it's interesting, so I'm looking at it here. Uh, Cuckoo's Nest was nominated for nine Oscars. It only won five, and it was it were the big five. Picture, actor, actress, director, and screenplay. Uh, its other nominees were Best Supporting Actor for Brad Dourif, uh, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and Best Original Dramatic Score. So did so the score was nominated. editing go to Jaws, I imagine? Yes. Um, that's a good question. Did yes, it? I'm pretty sure it did. Yes, Verna right, Fields. Let me look it up here. Who uh, Spielberg fondly called Mother Cutter. <laughs> I don't know why I know that. I just remember he called her Mother Cutter. <laughs> that's that's funny. Cinematography went to Barry Lyndon. And uh, which way is what? That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And um, let's see here. Dramatic. So did Dog Day Afternoon get like shut out, or did that win the other screenplay? Yeah, I think it won other the uh, adapted screenplay. Yeah, and the other the other uh, the the score original that screenplay. won was Jaws, which is pretty well original screenplay. Too. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Dog Day Afternoon won original screenplay. Yeah. Now what's interesting um, is I re- I watched Shampoo this summer for the first time, and I was really bored by Shampoo. I was very disappointed by it. Are you a fan of Shampoo, Todd? Like it, that movie did not work at uh, all. I, I watched it probably seven or eight years ago, and I remember thinking that it had, like, five or six worthy Best Supporting Actress nominees, and I know that that movie is supposed to be, like, uh, I don't know, I, I, it's supposed to be, like, way ahead of its time or something like that. I, I've heard people talk about it recently, even, and I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not crazy about the movie, but I, I do remember enjoying it. Yeah, I was Didn't bored. Didn't age well, I, you're I, saying? I, no, I don't think it aged well at all. Like, I, I had a hard time even getting through it. And um, I don't know, like, Lee Grant winning for it, like, I, she's not even in the movie that much. And, I mean, Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin, for me, are much more notable. I mean, you could put a lot of people from, from Nashville in, in that list, too. But oh, yeah. um, Well, I think Louise Fletcher is obviously supporting, too. I, I, that would have been the winner in that category if that was properly placed. I, I think I, I would say that's that's a fair statement I, I i think it's very borderline where to place her yeah did you guys know that of, so those other two winners it happened one night and uh silence of the lambs only did you mention this terry i can't remember if it, they, they've only won those five awards they didn't win any of the any other awards just those top five. i did not mention that that is very fascinating wait though. so silence of the lambs didn't win it oh that one was meant jfk that makes sense <laughs> yeah huh right i mean probably the only three hour editing winner <laughs> that, that, yeah, that makes sense, sense. <laughs> um let me look here so 91 let's see here so you had uh jfk won cinematography bugsy won art direction bugsy won costume design terminator 2 won sound jfk won editing terminator 2 won sound editing and visual effects and makeup uh score went to beauty and the beast yeah so it was only those five 
Well, That's well this is think. It's almost like you think it was, about. <laughs> you think about all three of those movies. Well, but you think about all three of those movies. They are very, um, they're very character based, and um, and, and you know character development, actor based, and all the tech Castle categories. Castle a horror thriller. I know, but it's well, it's very yeah. much about the characters more than yeah. anything, though. Uh, I, I mean, I could have seen it gotten get editing, but it's not going to get any of those other texts. Not not for something like that. Um, I I think it's interesting that they won director. I think that's more of the thing to to look at is how did how do you have Jonathan Demi pull out director? How do you have Milos Forman pull out director? Um, and I, I'm saying he I. I I think he did a great job, but you look at some of those other movies, I think those might be much more directorial achievements. And I think it, it speaks to a time when it was let's award the movie more than let's award the best. I, I feel like nowadays the Academy is much more in favor of spreading the wealth as much as possible. I mean, what, since, since they expanded the field, how many times have there been, uh, have, has there been a split between director and picture? Well, that's it's like a change more, in how more they vote, often though. than like not. Best, best picture is no longer the movie that has the directorial achievement. But it, right. I mean, well, yeah, I, it but, does just show like back then, yeah, they would they would give it to their favorite movie. They would just give it all the awards. Right. When I think you could say in '75, I mean, like you said, the those guys who were nominated there, I. I Honestly, the only one uh, other one I've seen is Dog Day Afternoon that was nominated for director. Um, but I, I would that was just as deserving as Milos Foreman was for for Cuckoo's Nest. I would say. Did you guys see that Jaws won every award that it was nominated for in 1975 except for Best Picture? Do you know the next film that did that? Ooh, no. You have oh, any guesses? It, it was like. Oh, it, 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 something that won all its nominations except Best Picture. Yeah, I can. Uh... It's a movie we've deep dive not not too long ago, or deep dove. <laughs> we deep it, divin. Yeah, it, it was a deep <laughs> divin. The answer is traffic. I, I, <clears throat> traffic. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Would, yeah. I knew. I knew. I had. I come across that stat recently. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. And, well, let's get uh, into... Sorry, just one more, oh, one more quick note about this 1975 Academy Awards. Um, Amarcord, which is the, the great Fellini film, probably maybe my favorite Fellini film, um, was the last film to be nominated in two separate years. It was nominated in 1975 for Best Director, but it was nominated for Best Foreign Film in 1974. <laughs> Someone needs to write they changed the an article about that. that. They changed the rules did, after that, I'm pretty sure, or, or after one of the times that happened. Did they it actually only, change the rules? Because if they did, films. I'm I'm kind of disappointed that they would, because so many times, those foreign films aren't aren't available in America and aren't eligible for anything but the foreign. Yeah, but film. I mean, then like the lives of others probably would have been a best picture nominee the year after. They, right, they, and it and I I I would argue it should have been. But I mean that that's kind of crazy that you have something like that that can only be eligible for foreign, and it beat Pan's Labyrinth that got like three other nominations just because it it made its debut stateside. Have either of you guys seen Amarcord? It's a pretty good I movie. I, I have not. I have not seen it. 
I honestly don't think I've seen a single Fellini film. And apparently you haven't seen Jaws. Is that what, oh no, Jaws was well, Jaws was nominated for director. That's right. Jaws was not nominated for director. Honestly, I, I've it's been if I've seen Jaws, it's been long enough that I remember very little about it. So I probably need to watch that one again sometime very very soon. Okay, let's get into our. Um, our discussion about our Mount Rushmore for surrounding one floor of the cuckoo's nest, because I think it's going to play into a lot of what we've already been talking about because our Mount Rushmore is um, films that were nominated for both best actor and best actress. So uh, the, the two leading performances uh, were both nominated and, and Todd, you came up with this category kind of surrounding this. So I mean, our, are we looking like best film here? Are we looking best tandem? Are we looking what are what are you looking at here? Uh, I was kind of thinking of best movies that are just the best movie that features performances that were nominated for best actor and best actress. Okay, okay. So I went through, um, I went through all Oscar years and came and wrote down every single one that qualified for this list. I'm gonna ask you guys. How many do you think? How many times has this happened? Twenty-four. I'm going to say sixty. Eighty-one times. Eighty-one times has this has um, a film been wow. nominated in the best actor and best actress category. One time, one year, had three different films do it. Can you just can you figure out which year that was? 51. That is incorrect. 1981. Um nine, I oh gosh, is it 81 or 80? Atlantic City. Yeah, uh, it sounds like yeah, that's that year. Red Pond. And, Reds. and Reds. Yep, that was the year. That was 81? Yeah, well I mean the I reason my head I knew that is cuz I did the other list. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So that year <laughs> So that year had 3 um, this has happened, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, five times in the last decade. And, um, the decade before, it only happened three times. It happened a lot back in the, uh, back in the early years of the Academy. Can you, uh, do you know what the first time this happened was? Cimarron? Cimarron! Was the first time this happened in 1931. Yep. Okay. Because that so was nominated best... for the other ones, too, and I saw that on the list. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I think we just need to go into this and just go for it and say, and then, because I don't think there's any consensus that we want to come up with now. We'll figure that out later. Um, so, Zach, I'm going to you first. What's your submission for Mount Rushmore on this? Uh, I'm going to go with Silence of the Lambs. I think that's uh, if you're, you know, I think in a lot of those films, one performance is maybe better than the other, or it's maybe better remembered for one performance. But Silence of the Lambs is, I think, one of the few films that qualifies for this category where both performances are equally remembered fondly and both are very, very well deserved in 1991. The one problem I have with Silence of the Lambs, though, is I don't think. Anthony Hopkins isn't a lead. That's the one problem I have with oh, it. Oh, please. He's the lead. Come on. He's I, in I, it for he... like 15 minutes. 
he's in it for uh, he, he's a substantial part of the movie the, the the movie works because of him he's the yeah, guy, it's he, same as with peter finch but i mean at the same time like they both have very little screen time yeah okay i mean i i i agree that that it is definitely a deserving performance but i don't know if it if it's i i just don't think it i just don't know if it's lead but i love that movie okay so we got silence of lambs todd what do you got uh, okay, so what I did was I went through my top 100, and I picked out all the movies that qualify, and there were nine of them. Um, and honestly, like, the top, I mean, three of the top four we've talked about, like, we've deep, done a deep dive of one of them, and we, uh, did a review of the remake of another one of them, and the other one we talked about some, so I'll pick the one that's below that, below Sons of the Lambs, and that is Bonnie and Clyde. And mm. obviously, a uh, classic movie, a kind of a game-changing movie, and Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway are uh, amazing in their roles, and it was, yeah, one of the movies that really ushered everybody into the great movies of the 70s, and it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know what there is to say about Bonnie and Clyde that hasn't been said, so, <laughs> I'll, I'll submit that one. Okay. That that kind of messes me up a little bit, but I'll figure this out. You were gonna pick Bonnie was, and Clyde. I was not gonna wow. pick Bonnie and Clyde. I was not. But I I was thinking I, I in my head I was looking at it and said, all right, which Faye Dunaway performance do I want to go with? And Bonnie and Clyde was not one of the two I was trying to pick between. Oh, I see. so oh. so no, no, pick either of them. <laughs> d- d- yeah, and so so I'm like, okay, you picked so Chinatown do, for a recent thing, right? I, yeah, so I, I was gonna, I was going between Chinatown and Network, and which one do I pick? But if Faye Dunaway is already on the Mount Rushmore, do, do we really want to put her on there again? Um, so I am going to go somewhere else, and I haven't decided where yet. I thought you were going to say Dunstan checks in with uh, Jason Alexander and Faye Dunaway, but I don't, I don't think yeah, either of them got nominated. That's obviously, that's obviously what I was going with. You read my mind. Um, I'm going to go... Oh, gosh. You know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go super old school. I'm going Gone with the Wind. Clark Gable, Vivian Lee. Um, I, I mean, it is... Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara is... Just... Is one of the, the... I'd say one of the greatest female performances we've had. And... and there is nothing more quintessential Clark Gable than Rhett Butler. And, uh, and it's just amazing. It's still known as one of the greatest films of all time for good reason. Um, it is, it is so iconic, so classic. And those two performances are just are as iconic and classic as the film itself. So I'm going gone with the wind. Yeah, that was, uh, that was in the 12 that I wrote down. So, so before we decide which one we're going to go with here as a combined, did you know that two versions of A Star is Born uh, qualify for this, and one of them is not the Lady Gaga Bradley Cooper because they robbed Bradley Cooper of a nomination? He was he was nominated <laughs> for Best Actor. He wasn't nominated for Screenplay. That was why it was, or no, it was Director. That's why it wasn't nominated for... No, he wasn't nominated for Actor. He was. It wasn't nominated for director. That's why it didn't qualify for the last list we did. Wait a second. Wait a second. Did I get this wrong? I'm yeah, and I feel like wrong. we talked about this the other day, Terry. 
We may have talked about this the other day. I had this written down. Oh, he was nominated. He wasn't nominated well, for Well, then, director. never mind. It's 82 films, then. And three different A Star Is Born's qualified. <laughs> oh, so the, the Judy the, Garland the one, one. The Judy Garland one and the and one the, in the 30s. The Frederick yeah. March one. That was nominated for all five. That was nominated for all five? Yeah, there were only like ten more throughout history that had been nominated for the other ones. Alright, anyways. Well, now that I've been proven wrong, who knows how accurate my count is now. <laughs> what are we going to submit as a as a group here? What's our what's our our group submission? Well, what were the other ones you guys were thinking of? See if we have common common in Well, in our... Chinatown and Network, but um um I thought this movie was the default. I thought we were going to go with Cuckoo's Nest as the fourth. I mean, we could go with Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, yeah, I admit, I, I don't love the movie as much as I used to, but I think it's sort of the obvious pick. I mean, if if you're looking at not just the fact that they won, but, you know, relatively equal screen time and I, the iconicity of the performances. I, I, I'm oh. surprised, Zach, you didn't go with In the Bedroom. Well, look, I, I wrote down five others besides Silence of the Lambs. I wrote down In the Bedroom, Casablanca, The China Syndrome, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Wait, Ingrid Bergman was not nominated, I'm pretty sure, right? Oh, she wasn't? Okay, then yeah. I take out Casablanca. Never mind. That's a it's ridiculous that she wasn't nominated. And oh, I yeah, also I wrote <laughs> I also wrote down um Marriage Story. I, I think Marriage Story is a movie that uh, ten years from now will be maybe in this category. But um well since Casablanca isn't there, all the more reason to put Cuckoo's Nest up there. Yeah, and well and I, I one I was thinking of, if you're talking not necessarily movie, but just performance value. Um, I love the performances in Walk the Line by Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. I think that is, those are just iconic performances that were just amazing. Um, we talked about Leaving Las Vegas recently and the performances there. Um, and the yeah, other one I was thinking of was Rocky. Too. Yeah, Rocky was another one that I was, I was considering with Sylvester Stallone and Talia Shire. Ingrid Bergman was nominated for a different movie that year. Ah. Uh. That's a rough. That's rough. <laughs> <laughs> or another one that we could talk about uh, that as another one, Zach. I'm surprised you didn't pick was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah, I, I did mention that, didn't I? Yeah, that was that was I, written on my you list. Might have. I don't know. Yeah, and but, and I but, think but, and, and, uh, yeah, and Todd may mention um, uh, on Golden Pond too. Yeah. And if you want to go iconic, you could also say like Sunset Boulevard. Uh, that that qualifies. Um, uh, you could talk about another film we talked about more fairly recently, Rebecca. That qualifies. Um, yeah, I alluded but, to that. <laughs> we did a review of the remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm so, good with uh, the other I'm ones I, I had. Uh, obviously, leaving Las Vegas uh on golden pond rebecca days of wine and roses we, we talked about those all except on golden pond uh zach just mentioned it today uh i had rocky who's afraid of virginia wolf american beauty a streetcar named desire gone with the wind and my favorite like royalty movie the lion in winter which i realize is not going to be chosen but uh <laughs> it is an amazing movie <laughs> one of the ones i was kind of surprised to see on this list the china syndrome Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda were both nominated for the China Syndrome. I thought that was kind of cool. Not Michael Douglas. Not Michael Douglas. 
Um, all right. Do we want to just default to Cuckoo's Nest? Do we want to? I mean, I, I like. I, I mean, Rocky would be. I, I think that's the one that we all pretty much agree on. I mean, I, Cuckoo, uh, Cuckoo's Nest isn't in my top twelve, so that's why I'm. I would push back a little bit. Yeah, let's, I, let's do I it. mean, go with Rocky. I like it. Okay, we're gonna go with Rocky. Yeah, I'm, I mean, looking at Cuckoo's Nest, it, it's hard for me to pick Cuckoo's Nest when he had when Jack Nicholson had a better performance the year before, and um, and the and Louise Fletcher was like never heard from again after after Cuckoo's Nest, or very very little was heard from her. So. Yeah. Um, I would think that both of those things would actually help the cause of that movie being in, in our, our our default, but the fact that she was never heard of again. Yeah. But she was also borderline supporting. I don't who cares? I don't like the designation to me doesn't well, matter. I'm Talia Shire is supporting. I mean the, the fact that Talia Shire That's was nominated in lead actress is kind of ridiculous too. Um no, I think I think the 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 thing that I've got against Cuckoo's Nest is I, I have trouble putting that on when we're not putting on Chinatown, and Chinatown it was definitely a better Jack Nicholson performance than just a year before. And it kind of bothers me that the Faye Dunaway representation is Bonnie and Clyde and not Network or Chinatown, but <laughs> I I was gonna go all in for Network and then and then you picked you picked Bonnie and Clyde, so how dare you talk? I should have just gone with on Golden Pond. That was that that yeah. was that was a minus one eighty that you were gonna go with on Golden Pond, Todd. What yeah. about Leaving that Las Vegas? I said that was a top well, yeah, ten the... movie of all time when we did that movie. <laughs> Not to mention top five acting performance of all time. So there's that too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and see, I said Jack Nicholson in Chinatown was a top five acting performance of all time. So. All right, we're going Rocky. Why not? So we've got Bonnie and Clyde, Gone with the Wind, Silence of the Lambs, and Rocky. This is a fascinating list. We could do this podcast again tomorrow and get a different four. Like, completely different four, I feel. And still be okay with that group. Those are three Best Picture winners, right? (laughs) Yeah, the only one that wasn't is Bonnie and Clyde. And Bonnie and Clyde is, again, one of those movies that might be... If you're talking like top ten most important movies of all time, yeah, Jaws and Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, those are yeah. Okay, I like it. I like it. Okay, now let's get into um, Zach's favorite portion of the deep dive, and that is the recasting. <laughs> we'll do this. We'll do this briefly. <laughs> we'll we'll go we'll go quick. We'll go quick. Um, all right. Th- this was kind of interesting. Um, I feel like if if this movie were recast, it would be like a star-studded cast, but that's just kind of what I was thinking. Zach, we're going to go to you first. McMurphy, originally played by Jack Nicholson, who do you got? I went with James Franco. You gotta be someone who's a badass. Gotta wear that leather jacket, but also be someone who's maybe hiding some deep insecurities. Okay, okay. That's good. Zach, uh, uh, Todd, what do you got? Uh... I have two written down. I went with Aaron Paul because uh, there, there are times watching that where I feel like when he's like trying to like rally the troops in, in, in the ward and stuff like that, I'm like, man, Aaron Paul would be killing this, and because he, he is totally the guy that's like too smart to be there. And uh, did did I, all right? Be honest. Did you go with Aaron Paul or did you go with Jesse Pinkman? I well, mean, be, yeah, Jesse Pinkman. 
essentially. <laughs> but I mean, I mean that also is just Aaron Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, Jake Gyllenhaal. That was my pick. I, 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 I think we're all kind of on a similar wavelength here. On, I was also on thinking Jeremy Renner would be fascinating in that role, but oh, that's a good one. Um, he's probably too that. Old. That I like. I like that more than Aaron Paul. That's that's a good pick. Yeah, see him, see him return to something like that. I could see. I mean, because now all all he's been doing the last ten years is is Marvel, and you get him, give him something like that. That'd be that'd be pretty awesome. Like when he okay. was like Dahmer, like he oh can, yeah, he can really yeah. sink his teeth into a crazy role. Well, and and you look at his two Oscar nominations for Hurt Locker and The Town. I think that speaks a lot to what he could do if he if he was given Cuckoo's Nest. I'd change okay, my vote. I, I, I would go Jeremy Renner. That's a great pick. Okay. <clears throat> All right. I'm still going with Gyllenhaal. I, I, like, I like Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, in that role. I mean, Gyllenhaal could do anything. Yeah. All right. Nurse Ratchet, uh, Oscar winner, Louise Fletcher. Zach, who do you got? Well, this was the, the most fun one. And I came up with three actresses uh, who are perfect, but I think they're all too old for it. And that is Isabel Huppert, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Imelda Staunton. And I think they've all played basically iterations of Nurse Ratched over the years. Um, so I had to go with someone a little bit younger than that who could also absolutely nail it. Um, and that's Tilda Swinton. Also too old. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I think she's a little younger than the others. Just a tiny bit. I was surprised at just how young Louise Fletcher was in this. She was only like 41 years old. She looks she she looks so much older. Anyways, well, Todd, who what, do you What got? I did, I went with um, two people that are basically kind of the same actress in my mind, and they are both really uh, subtle but also cold at the same time. So, and those are Rosemary DeWitt and Rebecca Hall. I could see that, especially yeah, Rebecca Hall. I could see. Mm. Rosemary okay. Wade doesn't do a whole lot anymore, but she would be. I think she'd be vicious as Nurse Ratchet. I think it'd be awesome. The first one that popped into my mind, and it was hard to not think about this, was Sarah Paulson because she's playing Nurse Ratchet in the Netflix series. By the way, have either of you watched that yet? I have. No. You have? I've watched the first two episodes of it, and I should have met. I, well, look, I mentioned the election coverage, but that's really what I watched the last couple weeks in preparation for this podcast. Two episodes. Two, the first two episodes, yeah. <laughs> that's a solid. It? That's a solid eighty-four minutes of time. Um, it, it was interesting. It is like the most Ryan Murphy thing ever. It has like half the <laughs> cast members of American Horror Story in it. It just feels like another season of American Horror Story, and it's also like laughably totally opposite to anything Ken Kesey would have ever written. Um, but it definitely has some entertainment value. I don't know if I see Sarah Paulson as Nurse Ratched. That's that's a bit of a stretch, but it, it's it's definitely some like you know ridiculous uh, over the top entertainment. All right. Okay, so my Nurse Ratched. I um, after picking Jake Gyllenhaal, I went with Maggie Gyllenhaal as Nurse Ratched. Not oh, only for the family be, connection, that actually but is wouldn't a, that be cool? That's good. That, that and, wins. And, and, yeah, and you add, I mean, oh, I, I was like, okay, th she would nail this role. And add the fact that her brother is playing McMurphy, I think that would just be next no, level. No, see, I, I, don't, I don't like Jake. I wouldn't go with that. However, Maggie Gyllenhaal's a great pick. Did you, either of you guys see her in the movie The Kindergarten Teacher? 
No. There's there's a bit of Nurse Ratched in that in that performance, but that's a great pick, Terry. Sol- solid work there. Why? Thank you. Why? Thank you. Sarah Renner like, and Jamie Maggie Renner Gyllenhaal and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal. That's perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which probably is better than the combinations I had. <laughs> <laughs> He's 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 changing his picks to just uh, I don't know I'll just I, I, although I'll tell, just tell us when tell us when it's too <laughs> obvious so let's get a little more interesting okay uh, next we now now let's really get interesting let's get into the inmates martini brought to us by a very young and skinny Danny DeVito uh, Zach who do you got I went with Enrico Cataloni because he was mentioned earlier. <laughs> And I couldn't come up with anyone else. All right, Todd. Who, who was that? The the was dad on Veronica Mars. The dad on oh. Veronica Mars. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, okay, for for me for Martini, I he's a character that I don't know. He really doesn't talk, but so it's all facial expressions. But I feel like Patton Oswalt is sort of the no, like that's modern oh, day that's Danny perfect. DeVito. That's a good one. Yeah. I also thought really about if we did want to make him talk and make him kind of weird, I would pass the torch from the It's Always Sunny. Uh, I would go Danny DeVito to Charlie Day and make him Martini. That's a good call, too. I like, I, I think Patton Oswalt's better, but yeah, Patton Oswalt's Patton too Oswalt's old. Um, I went with, uh, I was looking at, like, the diminutive stature, and... Um, and I mean, it's it's a great character part bit, and I think this guy, after being a child actor in uh, as a lead, has really kind of pigeonholed himself as being a really good character actor, and that's Daniel Radcliffe. That's my martini. Yeah, that would be. That that was not what I was picturing, but I I could I could I could see it. I'm not I sure why he'd working. be called Martini though. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. He's British. Maybe that's why he's martini. Shaken, not stirred. Uh, alright. Next... Yeah, there we go. There we go. Now we're talking. Alright, next we have, uh, we have Cheswick, brought to us by Sidney Lassick, originally. Zach, who do you have? Well, it had to be someone who was indecisive and could cry on command, so I went with Michael Stuhlberg. Mmm... That's not bad. And with the thick rim glasses, too. <clears throat> I like that. That's so much better than my pick. Yeah, Todd, my pick's probably have? too old. Uh, I think Chess is actually not an easy one to recast. Uh, he's got to be someone who's kind of vulnerable, uh, but also doesn't necessarily appear that way. I'm with John C. Riley. I... Mm. I'm not, I mean, yeah. I think he's probably a little bit too old, but I mean, I, I think it'd be really interesting to watch him try to do something like that. One problem I have with John C. Riley is I have I have trouble watching him do dramatic work after seeing his slapstick comedy. It just doesn't fit. I mean, he's more of like a quirky dr- drama guy than uh, like I can't see him doing the the outburst about the cigarettes without laughing through it. Just because that's hit, that's who he is, he can't do that without making it funny. Well, maybe, maybe it's just because of the sound of his voice. Yeah, that could be. Uh, my pick is Toby Jones. Uh, just because I think he could pull off like the innocent look, 
and and uh, he hasn't had a really great role that he could sink his teeth into in a long time, and I think he could pull it off. Toby Jones, I think it's the first time we've ever mentioned him in one of these. I think so, but uh, but when I see Cheswick, I I see I see that like just innocent, you know, ten year old trapped in a fifty year old's body, and and I think I, I think Toby Jones could pull that off. Okay. Uh, Tabor, played by a very young Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Zach, who do you got? I went with Andy Dick. <laughs> because we haven't mentioned him on the podcast. Just like we haven't mentioned um, whoever we were just talking about. <laughs> Toby Jones. Toby, Toby Jones. Jones. <laughs> All right, Todd, yeah, who do you have? Tabor is one of those characters that you could tell that he knows that he's kind of too smart to be there he's almost like above everybody else and i went with jason lee i know oh. it's a serious step out you don't really recast christopher lloyd ever but i mean J- jason lee has that like sarcasm and he could push everyone's buttons i i don't know i i, I when i thought of that i was like okay i could see it i went with adam driver well i mean you could but have he wouldn't him be as a supporting almost any of the characters that's what I'm saying. If this was recast, it would be a star-studded affair for sure. And I, I think, yeah, he's kind of being a leading man, a leading man. But I think he's a much better character actor. And then I was just thinking, like, who would you, who would you recast in Back to the Future? Like, couldn't you see Adam Driver pulling off that role? I don't know. I mean, Christopher Lloyd Zach Bear? and I talked about this in Vegas. How Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future is one of the five highest war performances of all time absolutely that, that's a good call <laughs> that is a good irreplaceable call. <laughs> it, it, that was actually zach's call but i mean <laughs> yeah i mean i i agreed that's why it's that's like when every time you see him it's like who are you gonna put to put put in that place i mean he's one of a kind yes yes absolutely okay harding played by william redfield originally zach I, this one was impossible for me to cast. I went with Aaron Johnson Taylor. With Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson. He's way too young. Uh, and that's terrible. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. I got okay, nothing. Okay, no, no. The correct answer, I mean, he, he is very buttoned up and reserved. And he uh, does not, he stands out in the cast because of that. And that is Eugene Levy. He is the perfect Harding. He's way too old. He's like this movie was made thirty years ago. Uh, yeah. How old is Harding? I, I he's got to be fifty-ish at least. Eugene Levy's not he's, in his like seventies. I think he is. I I think I think Eugene Levy is in his seventies. Eugene Levy. Okay. And Harding, let's hear. He's he is uh he's he's seventy-four. Okay. So William how... Redfield was forty-eight when this was made. Because he so, died the next year at 49. He died Aaron, at 49? He died at 49. He died in August of 76. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So when this came out, he was 48. R.I.P. Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson, by the way, is 30. So I, I win that. <laughs> you can't go... <laughs> Closer in age. Barely. <laughs> Whatever. You you went like a th- like like... 66% of his age. I mean, that's not... Okay, I've got I've got <laughs> the better pick. I've got the pick that, I've got the pick that both of you are going to change to. First off, I have to say, whenever I see Harding in this movie, 
Um, his character, his demeanor, always just kind of reminds me of David Ogden Steers as Winchester in MASH. I, I feel like that. Too. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, it's basically the same character, I was right? also thinking the dad in Richie Rich. Oh, Edward Oh, Herman. yeah. He's dead, too. Um, <laughs> well, I know, but that's why well, I didn't David choose David Ogden him. Sears and Edward Herman are both dead. Um, but <laughs> didn't we do, didn't we do like a Twitter poll of like greatest Edward Herman performances after he died? In the, in the dad like and did. Richie Rich. And it was, it was the dad and Richie Rich, or is it the dad and Gilmore Girls? That was the vote. Um, <laughs> anyways, well, uh, my back. Harding, <laughs> my Harding is Colin Hanks. Um, button up, reserved... Uh, clean cut. Wondering why he's there. That's who I went with. Maybe it's I much better than like, either what, of yours. What is his son? Dan Levy. Maybe I should have done with that one. That would have been better than <laughs> yes. Eugene. Yes. Eugene fits the fits the profile. Maybe I'm just thinking of Eugene Levy in Best in Show, and I'll be like, okay, that's Harding. <laughs> I still think that's a horrible call, but okay. Uh, all right. Next is. I, I don't know why we're recasting this, but Chief... Oh, this is a good one. I have two choices for this one. Played by Will Sampson, who uh, I read was like a park ranger in the Oregon area there, and they cast him in this because he was the only Native American big enough to play Chief that they could find. Um, Zach, who do you have? <laughs> well, I had two. I, Adam Beach came to mind, but I also thought about Benicio Del Toro, who played a Native American in The Pledge. So, I, either one of those. <laughs> okay. All right. I, Todd? Okay. Uh, so, my two, um, I had uh, Tom Lister, who uh, is the, the big black guy. He doesn't even really need to be a chief. But in, uh, in The Dark Knight on the boat. Uh, and he's played in a bunch of other things. I think he's in The Longest Yard and some other things. Like, he totally fits that role because I think he's played it before. And I also thought of Vinnie Jones because Sphinx is basically chief. Like, he doesn't talk. <laughs> and when he does, it's really profound or something or really funny. And uh, so, yeah. Not I, gonna I would lie. love to watch both of those. <laughs> Not going to lie, Vinnie Jones crossed my mind. I, like, just sit, seeing, hearing him say, mmm, juicy fruit. I was like, that's... That's a Sphinx thing. <laughs> Sphinx, I love seeing you. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, I, I, of course, Adam Beach has to cross your mind because, honestly, he's, like, the only working Native American actor in his 40s or 50s. Um, but I went with... Uh, you You got to work on the stature. You got to have the big guy. I went with Jason Momoa. Oh. Yeah, could, yeah. That, See, that's that why I went with Tom Lister. Like, y- you know who I'm talking about, Right. I think so. I think so. Look, look him up real quick. You'll um, know I'm who I'm up. You're like, okay, I'm that, looking him up. That, that makes sense. All right. While I'm looking him up, let's let's get started on uh, Billy Bibbit, played by Brad Dorif in his Oscar-nominated role. Zach, who do you have? I went with Nicholas Holt. Ooh. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Might be too old. Maybe. But not as old as uh, Eugene Levy. Well, yeah, he's definitely not that old. He's maybe a third his age. Uh, I went with Griffin Gluck, who you might recognize from American Vandal, but I just watched Big Time Adolescence, and I thought that was a really good movie. And he, I did he too. does, like, really... Okay, well, he, he really uh, proved to me that he's more than just what, what he was in American Vandal. And I, I think he could pull off 
Billy Bibb, because I, I don't think Brad, Brad Dereef really uh, does too much to make him uh, th- that distinguished of a character. And I, I think Griffin Gluck deserves that kind of, like, Beatty Oscar role. All right, Beatty Oscar role, which means you got to get give it to an Oscar nominee, Timothy Chalamet. Okay, I mean, honestly, I, the first one that popped in my head was Tom Holland, but then I, I decided to go Timothy Chalamet instead. This is the kind of role that always goes to like Shia LaBeouf or something. I mean, there was this movie in two thousand one called Manic that had like all those kind of actors in it. Well, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the the main character in the, like the Mental Ward or whatever, and like it, it's always. It's always like the Shia LaBeouf role that that gets a really baity, stuttering character, but it, I don't know. What if Shia LaBeouf was McMurphy? Yeah, that that's conceivable. I would buy it. Anyways, I was All surprised right. Terry didn't say Joseph Gordon Levitt for McMurphy because I was gonna be like, he did that in Manic. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I know you guys haven't seen it. <laughs> All right, who would Nicolas Cage play? I think Nicolas Cage would play Kirk Douglas, someone who bought the rights to this movie with the idea of playing the main character before someone told him not to. <laughs> Maybe I, he's the, he's like the doctor that runs the the the, the hospital. That yeah, caught the fish. I could see it. Well, there's a there's a version of Nicolas Cage that plays Murphy, but there's also a very easy version of of uh, Nicolas Cage that plays Tabor. Like, maybe early 90s Nick Cage, he is he would be an easy taver. I wrote down Cheswick. Like, now, like current Nicolas Cage, could you see him play, pulling off Cheswick? I mean... Just... That would, I mean, he, he, be he has the disturbing. manic outburst. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would pay to see it. I mean, about, I'm not gonna lie. What about Clint Howard as Cheswick? How come that name didn't come up? He's probably too old. Oh, now, he's probably too old now. But yeah, you get go back how old like is Cheswick, fifty maybe. Yeah, how old was he? Clint Howard's like seventy-five, isn't he? Yeah, it? he's he's too old. He's too old. But maybe in the there's Gene a version, version of Clint Howard that there's a version of Clint Howard that could do it. The yeah. Eugene Levy Oscar version Powers. of this movie that was made twenty years ago, Clint <laughs> Clint Howard could have done it. Okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> uh, Sydney Lassick was fifty-three when uh, Cuckoo's Nest came out. And Clint Howard is a hundred. Clint Howard is older than fifty-three. Sixty-one. Like have... I guess he's not that far off. I thought he was oh. way older than that. I was way off. Yeah, I was too. Really, sixty-one? Jeez, wow. he could have played Billy in this movie if it was made in nineteen seventy-five. <laughs> he could probably still play Billy today. <laughs> not too old. How how old's Ron Howard then? I'm I'm fascinated by this now. Sixty-six. Clint's the little brother. Yeah, yeah. I never well, knew well, that. Well, Ron Howard directed a movie in what, like nineteen seventy, like four, three or four or whatever, right? Yeah, For but Ron, I Roger never, Corman. I never realized that Ron was the little brother, or Ron was the big brother. I thought Clint was the big brother. Always. How old is Rance Howard? <laughs> uh, or Gene I Howard. Uh, I think well, they're both dead now, actually. I'm quite sure Rance they're Howard both dead. Rance Howard died three years ago. 
Yeah. Rance Howard was in she an episode been, of Seinfeld. Uh, 90, she would have been 92 in, a, in like three weeks. <laughs> All right. Now that we've gone on a complete random tangent on the Howard family tree, uh, <laughs> let's get back to Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> All right. Highest war performance. Uh, Zach, what do you think? All right. Well, for me, this is this is in the uh, the the Nobel Prize award winner guy from Beautiful Mind category, the Austin Pendleton Award. I I'm also giving it the highest war performance to Dean R. Brooks as Doctor Spivy, a very similar role. Now, um, D- Dean R. Brooks was the head of the uh, mental institution in which the movie was actually filmed at, so it's almost not fair to put him in this category, but. I mean, my goodness, he absolutely looks like he would be the head of a mental institution. Especially that scene where he's talking about the fish that he caught, and he's like, no, it wasn't 40 pounds, it was 32. That, that, that's a random pick. Okay. <laughs> Todd, who do you got? Uh, so, I went with Sidney Lassick as Cheswick. I always thought he was the best performance in the movie and I think he's like just heartbreaking to watch. It's all in his eyes. He he's got like pain and worry in his eyes at all times. I think he's the most convincing character in the entire ward and I think he should have been nominated for an Oscar. I think uh, it's a it's an amazing performance and uh I it, it was the hardest one for me to recast. Yeah, I had Cheswick written down too, actually. Um, I thought that was, uh, that was the highest war. Uh, since you said that, I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with Chief simply because they couldn't, they literally couldn't find anybody else to play him. Like they couldn't find another six foot five Native American other than this random guy from Oregon. So, uh, that, that's who they went with. So I'll say Candy, like she just looks like that character. Whoever that Muse Small, she would be she would be my second pick. There are a lot of really high war performances. I was also thinking about um, Kay Lee as the night supervisor. I mean, that lady looks like she is a night supervisor at a oh. mental facility. I mean, she's that's a that's a perfectly cast role. Um, I'm gonna say the uh, the lowest war performance is uh, Delos V Smith Jr. as the uh, as the Honorable Dr. Scanlon, uh, because the entire movie, I thought it was Tommy Chong. <laughs> oh, no, see, that's interesting. See, I thought it was Hal Ashby. <clears throat> <laughs> Tommy Chong see, is too young for that role. <laughs> I, I thought, I, the whole time, I'm like, man, I just really want to... Yeah, I, I was expecting to hear, hear Tommy Chong out of that. Anyways. <laughs> Totally looks like him. I, and, I've, I, and I think the fact that Zach saw somebody else proves just how much that uh, this is, uh, that was the lowest yeah. war performance. Anyways, all right. Worst performance. Zach. Okay, well, um, this one's a weird one, but uh, I'm going to go with Jack Nicholson as the worst performance. But I have a reason Whoa. why, which is that 
Um, I'm going to pretend I'm Ken Kesey for a second. R.P. McMurphy is nothing in this movie like he is in the book. The book, it, it completely, um, he's a completely different character. He has red hair in the book. He's much taller. He's a war veteran. And um, he just doesn't, he, he's like, I think supposed to be Irish. Jack Nicholson really does not come across as any of those things. So in a movie that I think has a lot of impeccable performances, it's hard to pick out a bad performance. I can only say that uh, Jack Nicholson is not really what you envision when you read the book. I, I, I can appreciate that sentiment, however you're insane. Well, yeah, of um. course, he's great in the movie, but <laughs> I can't really pick out a bad performance in the movie. That's the strength of this yeah. movie is how uniformly great the cast is. All right, Todd, what do you got? Well, I'm just going to say it's unfortunate because uh, the Cowboys just lost to the Steelers, even though they were leading the whole game. And we could have been like Mercury Morris and Larry Zonka and cheers to the uh, no undefeated teams anymore, but we can't yet. Uh, breaking news. Uh, my worst performance is Brad Dereef as Billy Bivitt. Ooh. And I know he's nominated for an Oscar, but I've always seen this as a worse version of John Savage. Like, because he is a very similar character in The Deer Hunter, and he would have made it way more believable and way mo less annoying to watch than than Brad Dereef is, and Dereef had basically no career after this. Like, he, he hasn't done a whole lot. I mean, he's been, like, in horror Lord of the Rings? stuff. Yeah, like I said, n nothing in, in that good. Um, <laughs> like, I, I... Ouch. But, uh... I don't know. I, I, I've never liked that performance. I've never believed it. I, I don't think he does anything to warrant an Oscar nomination. He just stutters. I It's 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 not good. I completely disagree with that. I think he's great I in the movie. I disagree with that, too. But couldn't John Savage have easily done that? He did it two years later, or three years later, very much better. I think you're just I, influenced I, I, by your favorite movie. That's. I think so. I think so. All right, my, my worst performance, so I'm going to kind of go a similar route as, as Zach, as Zach was talking about, you know, the book and everything. I usually end up saying worst performance is the worst written role, and uh, and so my wife is going to be happy with me. I'm going to go Muse Small as Candy, simply because she has nothing to do and is just kind of this, like, eye candy and toy of a woman that just happens to be around. I, and, and, like, let's let's get her on a boat so that guys can do stuff with her. Then let's get her to the ward so that Billy can sleep with her. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's kind of a lousy, thankless role. And, uh, there's nothing really there for her to do other than just to, to then you should be have picked the object Angelica of Houston man's as woman affection. in crowd on a pier. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I, that's just in there because Angelica Houston just happened to be an extra in this movie. I'm not going to pick that as the worst performance. <laughs> you just picked one of the ones I said should have been highest war because she looks. I know, like a and you're an idiot for saying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Yeah, you're, the, the, I'm sure you take that as a uh, badge of honor. Okay. Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller, Best Minor Character Award goes to... Zach? Oh, this was an absolutely easy call. This is Scatman Carruthers as Turkle. He actually is a lot like the High Roller in uh, uh, Uncut Gems. He like comes into the movie at the same point um, as the High Roller comes in in Uncut Gems. He's also similarly terrible with women. Um, he's absolutely like, he has no game, no skill whatsoever. Um, and, I don't you know, agree you, with that. 
Really? I, I think he kind of blows it with, with, uh, with Candy's friend. What's her, what, what's her name? Rose. Like, Rose is not interested at all. But, um, he's an old yeah. man. I mean, he's out of it. He, he's past his prime. I want to know. He's been out of the game years ago, but he can't go home because he hates his wife. Yeah, I want to know someone who's, who's putting his, his, his job on the line just for free booze. I, that's impressive, I, I guess. It's not just booze. He's getting women, too. Like, I don't know. I mean, well, okay. I mean, but yes, you're, you're right. He is one of the highest uh, Big Tim rollers. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> My you should you should have said minor. Big Larry Roller. That would have just combined them all. Magic Larry. <laughs> yeah. Amazing Tim uh, Roller. <laughs> uh, my pick ahead, is Colonel Matterson because he is like just around. Everyone respects him, and he's just doing his thing. They like wheel him around. They wheel him out to the. To, to the basketball court just because and McMurphy calls him general I mean like the, when, when the first time he says he calls him general like you're just like dude that guy is the king of this place and uh, he's my favorite minor character <laughs> that's a, he knows that's the national point. anthem that's the one thing he can recite <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so my favorite minor character is the uh, is the dancing uh Inmate, yeah, I, I don't remember his I name. I like him too. We should have recast he's him. He's the best. We we totally should have. Um, he's the best. He, he, he all he all he does is just walk around the, the ward and dance. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. That would have been a good Nicholas Cage role too, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been a good one for sure. All right, um, Zach, do we even need to ask about who the biggest stick man is? Oh, I think it's so obvious. I mean, if you want to ask it, we can, but it is so obviously Harding's wife. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I wrote down for Zach. Harding's wife, well, here's the thing. Harding's wife, I'm just going to throw out a conspiracy theory here. Harding's wife is also like Officer Slater's wife in Superbad. You know, she's really getting it in. She's getting the poundage. And, um, yeah, I mean, we you could make the case that Harding is not performing his his duties because he might not be interested. He might he not, that might not be the way he swings, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, she she's she's certainly getting um, getting her her tank filled somewhere else. I feel like all right. Here's my conspiracy theory. I feel like like. Harding's wife is in some way related to the plot of Chinatown in the uh, private eye chasing down, seeing where the uh, where the infidelity is happening. But you know what? It's it's about content and form, Terry. (laughs) Uh, So, Todd, you had the same. Well, yeah, but I also said Turkle like back in the day because. You could tell, Turkle like, right no when game. the alcohol shows up, right when the women show up, like, he is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, he was <laughs> I back, know what all this means. <laughs> he was back in the zone. Like, you could tell, like, yeah, him in his in his 20s and 30s, like, man, he was, he was a stick do- man. Turkle doesn't even drink that much. I mean, he, and he falls asleep. I mean, they all fall asleep. But he's the well, yeah, night watchman. Now, I'm saying back in the day, Turkle was a stick man. That's a terrible pick. I went with McMurphy because, I mean, he's bringing women oh, onto the boat. He's, he's bringing, bringing women bring into the war. He's bringing underage, 
underage girls, but okay. Oh, well, okay. The, the pro, yeah, the candy, sure, but. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then when he's asked, like, are you going to marry her? He's like, no, no, she's, she's just, just a friend. <laughs> I think she's the one I could get a hold of Billy to show than, up today. Than <laughs> uh, all right. The, uh, how about, uh, the award that goes to the Swan Micah Oliphant douchebag award? I love how Timothy Oliphant is the only one that is an actual actor that is a part of this list. The, the rest are characters. Well, I mean, we and could just we name Timothy every Oliphant. character he's played. I mean, <laughs> this is more efficient. <laughs> Much more efficient. Zach, who's the biggest douchebag? I went with Mel Lambert as the harbor master, who, like the like the Doctor Spivy and other characters, um, was an actual harbor master master in Depot Bay, Oregon, which is one of my connections to this movie. I, every summer, my family went out to Depot Bay, and actually, that when they go under that bridge, um, when they take the boat out, that is a bridge I've walked across many times. It is the lar- world's largest indoor harbor, which is its claim to fame. And I've always thought that the day they go out to boat is like the most beautiful day in the history of the Oregon coast. Most, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, good so, call. Seriously, <laughs> uh, Mel Mel Lambert as the harbor master is really pissed off, and um, yeah, I guess he goes along with it. But um, apparently, according to the the making of the film, um, he actually was legitimately upset at Jack Nicholson for taking his boat. So I don't know if that was actually his boat, but he was upset, and uh, Nicholson riled a really good performance out of him. So maybe he really was a douchebag in real life. He also sounds like he must have played for the nice. Pittsburgh Steelers if his name was Mel Lambert in the 70s. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? Uh, I went with Tabor because I he's just an antagonizer, and I feel like he's way less qualified to be there than basically anybody else. He's more like McMurphy than anyone, and uh, he just knows how to push everyone's buttons. He knows what he's doing. He's a dick. I, I, the whole time you're just like, I mean, why is that guy here with all these other guys? And then, I mean, he does have his like random outburst, so he is kind of nuts. But at the same time, like, I'm just like, dude, shut the hell up. He's a yeah, that, that's a great call. And actually, one of the things I do remember about the book, and maybe you know, Cassie can re- correct me if I'm wrong, but like. I remember the book, Tabor was the original McMurphy. He was the one that tried to organize a, a, a protest against Nurse Ratched, and then I believe he was lobotomized, which of course the movie doesn't really elaborate on. But in the book, he's, I, I believe, more developed as a character and someone who is anti-establishment in the same vein as McMurphy. That would originally. explain a little bit about why wow. he is the way he is, yeah. too. Like, 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 like he feels like McMurphy, but something's off, yeah. too. That, 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 that explains that. That's interesting. interesting. I'll yeah, have to yeah. I'll have to check I, with. Uh, I wouldn't have known that. <laughs> I'll I'll have to check with the expert on that one. Um, inside information. I, yeah, inside information. I just simply went with McMurphy and as the biggest douchebag because, I mean, he's coming into a, a psych ward, and thinking these people are normal. And they obviously are there for a reason and need help. And so many of the issues that pop up in this are simply because he's being a douchebag and not realizing that these people are people who actually need the help of medical professionals. And um, and one of the brilliant brilliant parts of his performance is how he slowly realizes the the issues and the fact that he has misread the room in so many ways. 
as he sees, you know, as he sees out, outbursts from Cheswick and as, as he sees Billy's fate and as he sees all these different things, uh, it shows just how much uh, he didn't realize what was actually going on. So that's yeah. that's my pick. All right. What's the best scene in this movie, Zach? Well, I always found, uh, lo- love this movie for the last scene. Um, I thought the, the, the last scene is maybe the most famous scene from this movie. It's not I, I, as, as iconic as this movie is, there's probably not a lot of great individual scenes in it. I'm certainly not going to pick the boat scene because that scene uh, for me doesn't work anymore. But uh, the last scene does work for me still. However, I can't help but wonder... Everyone feels so like motivated and enthusiastic and um, you know upbeat ending. But if you take out the music and just watch that movie, watch that scene without any music, it's actually a really downbeat and depressing ending. But so maybe the music is the MVP in that scene. But it's still a great scene and a great way to end them in the movie, which is also the way it ends in the book too, if I remember correctly. That's a good call. That's a good call. Um, I mean, it, it made the uh, what was it the the. The hundred cheers list is that what it, that crap? But it wasn't about the scene. It was the whole, the whole movie. But yeah, okay. But it, it was because of the last scene. Yeah, I think sure. well, well, and that's I the think only it, thing cheer worthy in that entire movie. Exactly. I think the moment that the chief hugs R.P. McMurphy is for me the most emotionally relevant moment in the movie, and I think that that actually holds up fairly well. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, I have a few. I, I, I'm going to say McMurphy when he's trying to get everybody to uh, vote to watch the game. Because in that moment, you see Jack Nicholson at his peak. Like, he is doing everything he can. He goes to every member of the entire ward, and uh, you get to see a little bit of each of their character. Like, it, it's a, it's an awesome scene. It, it's sort of almost a rousing scene, which is odd at that point in the movie. But I... I love that scene, and of course him acti- actually acting out the game, which we alluded to recently, because that was on my one of my lists that I made, the best sports scenes in non-sports movies, but uh, him actually getting everybody on board, or trying to, I-, I think that's an amazing scene, that is capped with Chief raising his hand, and McMurphy freaking out, I, it, I, I love that scene. <laughs> that's a good call. Alright, so... I'm going with the boat scene, but not not the whole boat scene. The uh, the getting on the boat and the just like the getting to the boat and then convincing the boatmaster to let them take the boat. I already mentioned like my favorite quote in this is as is McMurphy going through the list of people. It's like oh this is this is Doctor Martini, this is Doctor Scanlon, the famous Doctor Scanlon, and and this is Mister Harding, and and just just like completely just sliding him in that way just that tiny little bit and that if you're not paying attention you don't even catch it but harding definitely catches it that that's like and and every time he says it you look at them and they're like okay you in that moment when he says doctor and their name you can kind of buy it and i just love that moment oh yeah and they, they like, all they all sprout up like oh yeah like oh yeah that's me <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and, and so that like that that there i just i just love that little bit just that tiny little bit there is just awesome so uh so that's what i'm going but well, it starts I mean, with him being like ask captain block why i'm doing this <laughs> captain yeah, block yeah. <laughs> it's like 
Captain Block. And he's like, wait, what are we going to do if we get caught? And he's like, he's like, well, then take us back to the feed farm. We're nuts. <laughs> yes, I, 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 that was my second choice, that, that scene, that gear. It's, it's <laughs> a great right. scene. I mean, obviously, the end is the most iconic. And, and it's hard, it's hard to, to argue with that. But that, that was, as I was watching, I'm like, that, that's my favorite moment of the, of the whole thing. All right, um, flaws, outdated conspiracy theories. Now, Zach, I, you said it hasn't aged as well as you as you would have liked. Um, can you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of things in this movie that didn't work for me this time. I mean, number one overall is this movie has a very skin deep, superficial look at mental illness. So the characters in this movie are treated as sort of comic caricatures without a lot of in-depth, sophisticated views of um, mental illness. Um, They have these kind of comic traits that are cute and lovable, but it doesn't really go any deeper than that. Um, However, and and I've, I've always known that about the movie, too, even back in the day when I really loved it. I always defended it, though, in the sense that this movie isn't really about mental illness and it's not really about a mental institution, but of course it's symbolic of society. And I think that gets to my larger flaw in the movie, which is that I don't really know what Jack Nicholson in this movie is re- is rebelling against. Um, I'm sure in the 1970s, you know, this notion of the, the you know a government that sent people off to war in Vietnam, an unjust war, and I'm sure you know a government that uh, was corrupt like Richard Nixon and Watergate. I'm sure you'd have every reason to be suspicious of what a government was trying to coerce its citizens into believing, and things like surveillance and paranoia, you know, obviously manifested in movies like uh, The Conversation and uh, A Clockwork Orange and, and Cool Hand Luke and these other movies that I think actually kind of look at the whole like prisoner archetype in a more uh, profound way. I don't know what this movie's rebelling rebelling against, and I think that kind of goes back to Nurse Ratched. I mean, she's a manipulative character who um, wields power in unjust ways, but honestly, what's the most unjust thing that happens in this movie? They don't get to watch the freaking World Series, okay? This movie is ultimately just about fear of women, and it's I, I think it's, like, very misogynistic, and, you know, like like Terry was saying, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's a movie that um, you can choose to believe that um, Nurse Ratched is not a stand-in for everyone, Woman, but I feel like part of the allure of this movie, certainly if you're a, a, a young guy, is uh, Nurse Ratchet is a stand-in for your mom, for your teacher, for um, the, the, the nuns at your church, for your boss, for everyone, and you just want to strangle her because she's a bitch. And I'm sorry, but like that is that is how this movie is presented to me. And I know Ratchet is is uh, you know a, a really negatively portrayed in this movie, and, and Louis Fletcher is is amazing in this movie. But honestly, I felt the I felt like she was the most compelling character. I felt kind of similar to when I rewatched The Graduate and thought Mrs. Robinson was the most interesting character. Like she needed more development. I was way more interested in her as a character than I was McMurphy, who's this again statutory rapist who's kind of one dimensional, whose solution to everything is let's just man up let's play cards let's watch let's watch basketball and and uh you know uh get laid that's such a simplistic uh solution to the problem and i think ken kesey would also agree with that of course the other flaw is that uh this 
movie shortchanges the uh, chief character who's much more developed in the book. The book is going for something very different, so I can't necessarily fault the movie for going for a different aspect, but um, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like this movie sanitizes mental illness um, in a way that it, it is, is not particularly um, accurate, and it also, um, I think, villainizes um, people who honestly try to help uh, others, like like nurses. And, I'm you know, Kesey based his experiences on when he was in a psychiatric ward, and uh, when, um, you know, uh, the CIA was doing uh, uh, treatments like uh, MK Ultra to try to make sure that people under, uh, in surveillance and in interrogation would, you know, reveal their secrets. And so that's that's a side of the, the story that I think needs to be told a little bit in a little context that I think is super important. It's probably more relevant in the book, but um, I just feel like this movie has a very overly simplistic worldview that is outdated, very much a 1970s movie. But frankly, if I'm looking for a movie about anti-establishment, then I'm going to go for something like Cool Hand Luke or even The Great Escape. I would also even say Doubt. I mean, Doubt is basically like this movie, but with two characters who are more complex than McMurphy and Ratchet. However, on a whole, I still think the movie's entertaining. It's just not nearly as worthy as the praise as it's been given over time. So a couple of things you mentioned. Um, I think you said it's definitely a 1970s movie, and I think that speaks to a lot of what you said about it being oversimplified view of mental illness because that was kind of the what we knew about mental illness in the 70s. We, it wasn't as much in the forefront. It wasn't as defined as it is now. And I think that's that's a very fair statement to make. My biggest thing, and going into something that you mentioned, um, I'll, I'm going to kind of disagree with you a little bit. And I would say, like, my biggest flaw is I don't necessarily see in the portrayal of the film why Nurse Ratched is vilified the way she is. I don't see her as the ultimate bad guy that she's given, like, number five on the greatest villains of all time. I don't see that. I mean, she does She does manipulate. She does have her moments, especially with Billy in the end, is is um, so out of bounds, over the top. Um, but, I mean, what from the first time I watched this, I... Uh, I had the feeling that I wanted to almost sympathize with her in how she is just simply trying to run her run her ward and help these people. And then she sees the bad boy troublemaker come in. And I, I was talking to my wife about this and 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 I, it almost felt like watching the since I've watched this for the first time, watching the scenes where she's running the the sessions with the whole group has almost felt like. For me, running a classroom. I mean, being a teacher running a classroom and where you have all these personalities, you're trying to manage all these personalities and get have everyone get something out of it. And then the bad boy that was just expelled from the school next door comes into your room. That's McMurphy. And she's got to try and deal with that while still helping everybody else. And how does she deal with that? She sets an example and makes an example of him and tries to, tries to punish him and show him exactly what's wrong with these people, and show him that he's completely out of bounds for even being there. I, I don't know. I always felt like Nurse Ratchet was more of a sympathetic character than a villainous character. I um, I was talking to my wife, and she said she's a very different character and much more developed in the book that makes her feel much more manipulative, much more villainous. And so when you're coming into the movie with that background, 
yes, she is this horrible, evil character. But just watching the movie, I feel more sympathy for her than than disgust. Todd, what do you? What about you? I mean, we're we're kind of you're you're kind of you're you haven't read the book, so you're a little more with a background of me. What do you think? I uh, I mean, I I do think that she she is painted as the. Uh, I mean, I don't know. She, she's painted as the as the one that that you're supposed to not feel sympathy for, but at the same, I, I can see what you're saying, and I, you do actually see, like, her point of view, like, trying to control the room, I, I get what you, I get that, I don't know, I, I, I guess I don't really have a strong feeling either way, I don't really, I, I wouldn't put her on a villain's list, though, like, that, that kind of seems crazy to me, because, I don't feel like it ever paints her in a way that is going to make her at, uh, like actually hate her. Because I don't think you really love McMurphy either. So I, I'm not really sure that... It... I don't know. I guess I am right between you guys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think I'm that apart from you, Terry. I, I would agree. I, I find her a more sympathetic and complex character in the movie than, than anyone else. I, I wish... Like, one of the flaws of this movie, and it, this will lead into my maybe my LVP pick, but, like, there are moments in this movie that that just touch on real complexity with these characters instead of making them caricatures. And like one example would be like when Billy tells McMurphy that he doesn't want to leave with him, that he has to stay in the hospital. And there's a similar moment when the chief tells him that too, but that the movie doesn't really like, like that's a fascinating argument. Why would you want to stay in the hospital? But the movie never really uh, uh, delves deeper into that. There's a similar moment when Nurse Ratched says that she wants to keep McMurphy at the hospital instead of just sending him off to the work camp in Pendleton where he's going to be someone else's problem. Like, those are really interesting details. And I, I, I wish the movie could have elaborated on those characters more. I, I guess I'm not really sure how it could have, but the movie just keeps going back to folly and comedy instead of looking at, I think, the, 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 the real complexity that, um, um, uh, that these characters might be feeling. I mean, Billy's a tortured character. And, and Billy does represent, like, on the one hand, the impulse to, you know, uh, run away and reject his mother, which I think is a very kind of stereotypical, cliched thing that this movie does. But at the same time, you know, he conforms to what Nurse Ratched says. And the scene, of course, where they all decide to go with Nurse Ratched and not vote for the baseball game is a fascinating scene. And I wish this movie could have delved more into the idea of being someone who has to conform because that's what you've been trained to do instead of ridiculous scenes like the fantasy scenes on the boat I, that that those scenes aren't very interesting i've seen that in movies before what i'm more interested about is the idea of conformity conforming to the establishment and conforming to what people tell you to think that that's a fascinating dynamic in this movie that uh, the book goes a lot more into and this movie just kind of opts more for you know hijinks and comedy i almost feel like you're so, describing the breakfast club so, you know, I was thinking, bit. I was thinking, not not necessarily Breakfast Club, I was thinking Shawshank Redemption and the red character sure, yeah. and how he doesn't understand how to manage not being institutionalized. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that that's a fair that's a fair you know conclusion. I mean, I I kept on thinking of like a Cool Hand Luke and The Great Escape when I was watching this movie, which you know very much come out at the same time, the same sort of anti-establishment, skeptical of authority type feelings. But you know, this movie just kind of wants to be a comedy. It doesn't really want to actually go go deep into those issues. By the way, like the moment when Jack Nicholson stares off into space, were you guys thinking about Mark Wahlberg and Boogie Nights? Like. 
like the scene where he just kind of looks and like that's a fascinating moment and that is a, also a moment where it's like maybe he realizes that he doesn't want to want to run away either and i don't know i think that's a, that's an interesting issue but then the movie just cuts away to the morning and we never really see you know a, a payoff for that yeah that i mean yeah interesting discussion all right anything else before we move on to lvp mvp uh, well, the only flaw I had written down was, like, right when he shows up, he already knows the names of all the people that are there. Like, he, I think he, he says Billy and Martini before he even actually gets admitted into the place, which I think was odd. I don't really know how that, I, I don't, I don't really know how he could all, all actually know their names already. And I also think the name, like, uh, the scenes with the leaders of the ward and Nurse Ratched talking about, you know, Passy and McMurphy all onto another, uh, mental institution or whatever like i feel like those scenes actually paved the way for orange is the new black to actually uh uh come to fruition because like those are the kinds of scenes that make orange is the new black really interesting along with like some of the interactions between the inmates i i i think that th those are the kind of things that make that make it really uh because i mean the, the, like half of orange is the new black is all about like the guards and the mm -hmm and the warden and stuff like that. I mean, it, those, those are really interesting scenes. And I think it, it probably goes back to that because I, I don't think I've ever seen that in any other movie. Yeah. I mean, this movie should, should be made into a, a series like orange is the new black where you get every character's backstory. But I, I, yeah. I think the, the book was a lot more cerebral and the book was about how the chief was a schizophrenic paranoid and he had these hallucinations and delusions. And so it's a very kind of cryptic abstract book, but the movie is much more of a clout, crowd pleaser. And so I would agree with Todd. You kind of want to know like more about who these people are and what backgrounds they come from. And it's just, you know, and it's, it's, it's a testament to, I think the, the great performances in the movie. Now, Zach, you mentioned you wanted to know more about Nurse Ratched. Do you feel like the, from what you've seen so far, the show Ratched is giving you that backstory that you wanted? No, I think the show's terrible. <laughs> but you know, I've only <laughs> seen two episodes. It's so trashy. It's like Mondo Trasho. But you know, it's Ryan Murphy. I mean, come on. I don't know. It's it, it's 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 terrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, you. you you definitely know what you're getting into when it's a Ryan Murphy production, for sure. Okay. LVP, MVP. Zach, you're first. All right, well, my LVP is Milos Forman. I, I think um, my hot take here is that he shouldn't have won Best Director for this movie. It, and it's going to go along with my MVP of this movie, which is um, Haskell Wexler. And the rumor has it that Haskell Wexler was fired in this movie uh, during the making of this movie. And he actually didn't film the sequence on the boat, which was shot at the very end of the shoot. Um, and Haskell Wexler has a great clip on YouTube where he just talks about Haskell Wexler. First of all, Haskell Wexler has no filter. So if you ever watch an interview with him, he's like, he just says whatever is on his mind. He's great like that. Um, but he just trashes Milos Forman. He says Milos Forman didn't understand American culture. He didn't understand cinematography. He didn't understand staging or blocking. He didn't understand actors. He was just a complete nobody who was just this kind of European chic bullshit, like in the same vein as Roman Polanski. And he just totally trashes him. And I kind of believe Haskell Wexler. And by the way, the cinematography in this movie, I mean, given that it's all shot in this very sanitized, you know, bland um, uh, institution actually works really well. And it's kind of based on that aesthetic of, of Titty Cut Follies, the Frederick Wiseman documentary. So I really like the look of this movie. I don't think Milos Forman had anything to do with it, though. And he also got into an argument with Jack Nicholson, too. Okay, okay. 
So who is your MVP? I'd take there. Oh, my MVP is Haskell was Wexler, Wexler, the cinematographer. Oh, yeah, okay. who was also the cinematographer for Kramer vs. Okay. Kramer, the best movie of the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, um, Todd. Agree to disagree there. Uh, LVP... <laughs> Uh, I went with, uh, I have a couple options. One is Martini on the basketball court because he just like (laughs) swings around and hucks the ball into the fence and he runs around aimlessly. Like he's not, like he's, he is the weak link on that team. And I also went with Candy because she screws everything up, uh, for Turkle for sure. And, uh, for the escape at the end. My MVP, um, I, I mean, I, I'm going to go with the Oscars because, like I said, the 1975 Best Picture uh, race was absolutely stacked. And uh, I, I, I love how, how it all en- ended up playing out. And Michael Douglas getting his his first Oscar because he's one of the people that really brought the movie uh, together and, and was able to get it made. He's, uh, he's one of the heroes of the movie. Unsung heroes of the movie, even though he won an Oscar for it. All right. <clears throat> Good call there. All right. Uh, I'm going to go a little more like storyline driven LVP MVP. My LVP is Dr. Spivey. Uh, if he had just simply done his job and looked at McMurphy and known what he was from the very beginning of just trying to get out of having to do labor duty and trying to present himself as crazy, none of this would have happened. It all would have been taken care of. Um, he knew it from the start. He just needed to follow through with his gut and not listen to Nurse, Nurse Ratched. So he's the LVP. MVP is definitely Chief. Um, he is he is definitely the L, uh, the MVP of this movie. Uh, he is uh, the heart of the movie. Um, the from what Cassie tells me and from some of the stuff I've read, the book is completely from his perspective too. Um, he is the main character of the book. And, um, and it would have been great to see a little more of Chief throughout the, throughout the movie. But yeah, MVP is, uh, is definitely Chief. He's also the MVP of the basketball team. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That, that is, uh, yeah, that is undisputable right there. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Quote of the day, Zach. All right. My quote comes from the the book, uh, One Flew of a Cuckoo's Nest. And I think this, this passage from it summarizes everything you need to know about the difference between the movie and the book. And it comes from the chief. And he says, I lay in bed the night before the fishing trip and thought it over about my being deaf, about the years of not letting on uh, that I heard what I said. And I wonder if I can ever act any other way again. But I remember one thing, and this is the important part. It wasn't me that started acting deaf. It was people that first started acting like I was too dumb to hear or see or say anything at all. And that, I think, summarizes the difference of the book and the movie and also shows how the perspective of the chief is so much more important in the book than it is the movie and it changes the message of, of the story completely. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, my quote comes from Kill Chain. Uh, the Nicholas Cage movie yes. I watched this week. Uh, because, uh, uh, you'll see. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> He, uh, Nicholas Cage is acting like he owns this, uh, hotel, and he says he only has two rooms open, and people keep coming in and asking him, like, two rooms, like, how do you make a living? And he says, oh, you know, low overhead, occasional opportunities. And I feel like that describes this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Alright. 
so so my quote uh i'm gonna touch on something that we uh that we haven't mentioned yet but it it was for me definitely like news of the day and that is the uh hearing about the passing of alex trebek today um at the age of 80 from from cancer and um and I mean, there's so many things that are being said about Alex Trebek and and the impact he's had, uh, being host of Jeopardy and being this pillar of of knowledge for for so many years. But what uh, um, one of my uh, one of my friends on Facebook, shout out to Eric Oswald, if you're listening, I'm shouting you out right now. I'm quoting him because he made a, an amazing quote uh, post on Facebook that said, "In a certain sense, it's comforting to know." that Sean Connery, Alex Trebek, and Burt Reynolds are together again, which makes me want to quote um, SNL, Celebrity Jeopardy. That's <laughs> not what your mother said, Trebek. Um, I, I mean, it's it's kind of funny that when you really think about it, that Sean Connery, yeah. Alex Trebek, they, they pass that away a week apart. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it until he mentioned it there. So, uh, so the penis mightier for 4,000. Um, it, it's kind of... It, it's, it's an amazing thing. And so and, uh, my my last quote is going to be, Alex Trebek said at one point, his last message he wanted to have to everybody was, and until we meet again, God bless you and goodbye. So that that's my quote. And also, just to wrap it all around, uh, Milos Forman originally wanted Burt Reynolds to play McMurphy, which would have been, made a very different that, movie. That would have been interesting, yeah. A very different see it, movie, though. for sure. <laughs> I actually could see it. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you so much for listening to episode 99. Uh, make sure you find us on uh, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on um, Spotify, on Pandora. Our podcasts are now also found on YouTube. You can find them there on the Almost Sideways YouTube channel. Uh, our audio links are being posted there. Uh, make sure you check out Daily Notes and uh, the most recent episode with uh, Adam and Zach interviewing... Uh, uh, Dice pretty Beppo. awesome, yeah. Dice the, K. Beppo from probably the uh, most Japan, fa- famous uh, one of the most fa- famous Criterion collectors in the world. Yeah, that, that I I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to listening to it, listening to it soon. So make sure you check that out. Uh, we will be back at you next week with episode 100. So until then, uh, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.